Escaped Sapiens. The West is going through a period of astonishingly rapid moral and ethical transformation, and cracks are beginning to appear in the image of the United States as the world's sole superpower and global cop. What might history teach us about what the future holds? This is a conversation with archaeologist, historian, and professor of classics Ian Morris. We cover a lot of ground, from the wild, unexpected, and dangerous aspects of archaeological fieldwork, including stolen artifacts, the politics of curation, and unhappy farmers with shotguns, to a more in-depth discussion about the rise and fall of civilizations. We discuss the impact of religion and war on technological and social development, and the evolution of our moral and ethical frameworks from those of hunter-gatherer societies, and its impact on women's rights and slavery. We end with the advent of artificial intelligence, the toppling of statues, the rise of China, and what the future may hold. I could have happily listened to Ian talk about these topics for hours more. I hope you enjoy. Escaped Sapiens. So do, do you have a do you have a favorite dig or or have you have, do you have like a is there a particular artifact that sort of you're most proud of or that you like the most that you found? Yeah, well, people because people will always ask. So, you know, what's the best thing you've ever found? And they want to hear you know, King Tut's mask or cave paintings at Altamira or something like this. The, the problem that a lot of us have nowadays is uh, like the focus of field research has shifted very much away from the elite tombs and temples and so on toward how ordinary people lived. And so <laughs> you know, we go out into the field deliberately seeking out what we think are you know, podunk middle of nowhere villages, which is what I was digging on this project in Sicily, a little place called Monte Polizzo, where basically as far as we can make out nothing ever actually happens. And so we deliberately seek out these places where nothing ever actually happens. And then we are shocked when we don't find anything spectacular. <laughs> and so um, yeah, generally, I find people's eyes glaze over pretty quickly if I start going into great detail about how excited I was with what we found, of the evidence of pig's teeth, of the age they were slaughtering them, which opened up these whole new vistas on the domestic household economy. And yeah, everybody kind of glazes over. But that's the, the kind of thing um that most of us tend to get excited about now so so then where do you know how to where to look because if you're looking at the lives of ordinary people there mustn't be many records of that yeah, well, this for, for, for a long time, this was, in fact, the reason why archaeologists tended to know so little about the lives of ordinary people. It's just it's just easier. You, you go out there, you go to Greece or something, and they've built a big marble temple on the top of a hill where you can't possibly miss this thing. And, you know, it falls down and it leaves great big ruins and lots of stuff lying on the surface. And so it was easier for archaeologists to go and dig the, the fancy, the high-end sites, and also... Um, uh, you know, in the 19th century, early 20th century, that was very much where the focus was on the doings of the great men, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so in the later 20th century, we start wanting to get just a you know, broader snapshot of how these societies work. Um, a lot of challenges had to be overcome. And one of the big ones was how do you even find these sites? Mm -hmm. And so we got all these techniques now. Um, I Probably the most important is still intensive surface survey. Like the, the old days, you found a site by renting a jeep driving up to the top of a hill and looking for the temple now um we, we don't know where these sites are going to be so we have to be much more systematic about 
walking the landscape and designing um, statistically valid landscape samples. So you're getting little bits of all the different kinds of landscapes. So if it turns out they all happen to live in valley bottoms, well, luckily we're spending some time walking over these valley bottoms. And um, satellite photography is very helpful. Crop marks will often show us where ancient villages were, all kinds of things you can do now with the chemistry of the soils. Um, but actually maybe the, the most important thing is still just like talking to people. Right. When we were working in Sicily, it turned out that the local farmers, they knew so much more than we did about where the ancient settlements were. It's because they're, they're plowing, they're turning stuff up all the time. And uh, it's not a big part of their lives generally, so they're not you know, running and reporting it to the authorities. But if you get talking to people, they will be able to tell you, oh, yeah, we found some stuff on in that valley over there. Well, actually, what now tends to happen is um, what people won't tell you about is if they find anything <laughs> vaguely valuable especially in the Mediterranean, what tends to happen in Mediterranean countries is um, if there's a site on your land and it looks like sort of vaguely significant um, site in the traditional sense, the government will swoop in and confiscate your land. And in theory, you will get mm. paid, but it might be 20, 30 years before you see a penny. So, um, yeah, I had a couple of <laughs> slightly alarming experiences in Greece of farmers showing up with shotguns, wanting us off their land right now. The minute they see the archaeologists, they get really worried. So there's you know, all these different sources of bias come into the sample that we get of the ancient sources but but just by trying a lot harder we now have this much better sense of where where the ordinary people's sites were do you have to travel then with the security <laughs> like an entourage <laughs> then or how does that work um no, no I, i'm a complete coward i stay away from the places where you have to do that i mean if you are digging say if you were interested in your know, kurdistan in northern iraq one of the most important archaeological zones on the entire planet you want to work up there boy you'd better have some good bodyguards and you would better have got them through very reputable people so you can trust them not to pull their guns on you and there's a lot of places in the world where things are very uh very unstable situations are very unreliable um and unfortunately i mean this is a joke about how god put oil in all the wrong places you know all the places <laughs> the oil is in dangerous places archaeology is a little bit like that you know some of the most important zones in the world are politically highly unstable ones i mean one of the places we would most like to get in and do some serious search on on botany and the domestication of plants and animals is the borderlands between pakistan and afghanistan incredibly <laughs> But, you know, shockingly, there's been surprisingly little archaeology there in the last 20 years. So so if I go ahead then and I, I do my own archaeological dig as a private person or I happen to stumble across, you know, maybe I'm really lucky here in Germany. I find the Ark of the Covenant or something <laughs> and I announce it. Is there any chance I can keep my hands on that or uh, not? Yeah, every country has different rules. And um, I, the, the ideal that most countries are striving for is some kind of legal arrangement that protects the antiquities and, and keeps them in the ground so that you know, properly qualified people can come and excavate this and recover all the information. So a balance between that and then some kind of incentive for landowners to actually report. Because you could have all these really burdensome laws like, um, like they have in Greece. Um, it creates a set, set of incentives really you know if you're a landowner you don't want to tell anybody anything if you can possibly avoid it and so um 
like in, in Britain, uh, one of the rules they've got in Britain is what they call treasure trove, where I believe it's now it's an even 50-50 split on the commercial value of anything you find. And so when you hear about these metal detectorists who are out there and they find these Anglo-Saxon hordes of silver and gold, um, you know, those things will normally be bought by the state, so I'll go say to the British Museum, but um, the British Museum will have to bid against private collectors of Sotheby's oh. and so on in auction to get them. And so um, they're, they're paying uh, the proper market price for these things. And the, the person who found them, the guy you know, wandering around in the mud, waving his metal detector around, or the, the landowners, they will get half of the market value, which is often you know, runs into the millions of dollars. So it's kind of a, a strong incentive. But even that, that's not enough for some people. There was a big scandalous case in Britain just a few years ago, somebody who tried, who made a big discovery of a hoard of coins and then tried to dribble them onto the market a little bit at a time <laughs> so it didn't attract too much attention and also didn't you know, flood the market and drive down the prices but inevitably he got caught because somebody like that there's no way somebody like that is going to be able to keep his mouth shut so he gets caught in the end but, um yeah everybody's sort of striving to get this perfect balance but in one of those auctions, why would anyone private enter the auction? Because doesn't the government always win at the end? Um, not necessarily. I mean, you, I mean, I do. I even though I'm in archaeology, I just don't quite get the understand the collecting bug that some people have. I don't quite mm. understand. Well, why would you want to have? this thing sitting on your mantelpiece at home. And especially if it's something where it's legally a bit fishy. So it's not like you can even show it off to your friends or anything. You keep it hidden in a bank vault somewhere. I just don't quite get that. Um, but uh, there are people who really, really do want these things. And um, and again, it varies from country to country. Like say in the US, um, there's a lot of privately owned museums uh, that buy really important things. Another big scandal case, making it sound like all archeologists are crooks here. There's a, a, a really big scandal um, a few years back um, about a guy who was in Oxford and in charge of managing one of their big papyrus collections from Egypt. Mm -hmm. And um, the, he, he's been accused, nothing has actually been brought to trial, but he's been accused of actually stealing papyrus fragments out of this collection, including what might be the earliest surviving fragment of a copy of one of the New Testaments. So this is an immensely, it's very small, it's like the size of a thumbnail, but an immensely valuable scrap of papyrus. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, showed up in a, a, a privately owned museum of the Bible. And you know, luckily the guys who ran the museum, they were all entirely above board. And they were like scandalized that they'd been taken in by this guy. But he's accused of having filched this from the collection, which wasn't a very well managed and run collection, hadn't been digitized, and then selling it privately to somebody who was willing to spend, I think it's like a million dollars on this little fragment of papyrus. So yeah, the government doesn't always win. And I think is if you work in museums, you go into museums, one of the things that is most overwhelming, you go down into the basement or back into the storerooms, just how full all of them are. Governments are um, not so keen to acquire more stuff unless they're sort of trapped into a corner where it would be scandalous if they didn't acquire it. Do you have full access as a researcher to those back rooms? Oh, now that is a can of worms. Uh, so, <laughs> everything I say now is making archaeology sound like it's terrible business. But um, that, again, this varies from country to country how they do it. And um, 
when I started my career in Greece, they have this very peculiar mixture of it. It's some ways very highly bureaucratized. So it's all run by government ministries, but in other ways, highly personalized. So like, say um, you are an archeologist and you go out there and you dig up some site and there's all, all this stuff gets generated and it gets stuffed in a museum in the storeroom. And then I come along 30 years later, I'm a young graduate student, I want to access this material for my dissertation. Uh, I have to get permission from the government agencies, from the ministry to look at it, but I also have to get your permission as the excavator. And if you're dead, um, which often happens in these things <laughs> decades, you're dead, you leave control of the rights to somebody in your will. So your widow or your children might have this. So I've now got to go and talk to your widow or your children, persuade them to grant me access to this material and there's no financial um incentives for them in this but it gives that they've got a lot of power and you can be a big player in archaeology well it used to be in greece it's changed a lot now but in the old days you could be a big player in greek archaeology without actually being an archaeologist at all just by controlling access to this material and you can make and break careers and just the most peculiar kind of situation and then I went off to work in Sicily. And Sicily, completely different. It's all about personalities. I mean, these giant men of all, it used to be all men, now there's a lot of women, but giant figures in archaeology control everything. And uh, we had a rather anxious moment where we were running our site. We've been digging there, I think, at four seasons. We've done a lot of work. And um, the, we, we'd been under the wing of one of the giant names of Sicilian archaeology, taking care of everything for us. He was the local superintendent of, uh, of cultural materials. And then he gets promoted to this much better job. So a new superintendent comes in and she goes into the archives at the ministry offices, pulls out the drawer in the file cabinet and discovers there's not a single piece of paper has ever been filed about our project. After four years of digging, hundreds and hundreds of people working there, there's nothing on record. We don't exist. Because our guy looked after us so well, he never didn't see why he should bother filing documents for his own benefit. So nothing got filed. And so, I mean, luckily the new superintendent was a very reasonable person and she sat down and negotiated a deal with us where we had to kind of make up all the paperwork and to file all the paperwork we'd never done and so we were able to continue but um that's the sort of thing that happens in sicily uh, you, you have these ghost projects that kind of don't really exist and then other countries you're know, completely different again so uh, yeah, yeah it's very very localized um, rules it it just sounds really interesting. I had no idea that there were these sort of crazy things going on in the background. I knew that a lot of there were originally a lot of artifacts that were essentially stolen from uh, countries and they're now in uh, various museums around the UK, for example. But I didn't know that these sort of things still still continued today. Well, I mean, so some of the, the stranger things in archaeological regulations are really because of what you're saying about the, the long track record of um really kind of colonialist archaeology. And so a hundred years ago, when uh, you know, new countries in the Mediterranean world and Africa and so on are trying to set up regulations to make sure this stuff doesn't happen again, uh, the new rules, there's always ways you can game these systems. And often they would play into the hands of you know, local bureaucrats who either can find financial profit in this or more usually um, like career profit. You can play the rules so that you become this extremely important person without ever actually having to do anything yourself. Is 
One thing that I've, this is not directly related to that, but one thing I've always been a bit curious about is, you know, when you go to Naples or Rome, you can go down f- five stories and you still find uh, buildings and uh, impressive monuments. I, I've never really understood how that happens, how that buildup of layers occurs. You know, I, I, I imagine it happening slowly over time, but at the same time, I don't imagine anyone having a house where the door is half filled up with uh, soil. So, so how does the process actually happen in, in practice? Do you know? Yeah, well, uh, interesting thing. Some of the best archaeologists are people who've worked a lot in construction. Because uh, uh, knowing how to build houses and what happens when they start falling to pieces. Uh, these are, are tremendously important skills for the excavator. And so uh, the, the way the sites get formed, um, it depends, uh, like everything else, basically, it depends on where you are and what the exact local conditions are. But say, um, if you have got a house at the, the bottom of a hill, and say um, say you live in the Middle East, where you, when you build a house, you would build a stone foundation for the walls to go on. Then the walls themselves would be made out of mud, basically baked mud. You, you, you dig up good clay, you leave it to dry in the sun, you've got these bricks now, and you can build your house. And then you put a roof on top of it that's basically made out of thatch, say. Um, and then you abandon this house, you live in it for a few years, you go off to live someplace else. And what's first going to happen, um, just as it would if you abandon where you live now, the windows are going to break. Whatever you use to cover the windows will break, so the rain and the and the wind can now get in. And they start eating away the building from the inside. So the first thing that happens is the roof comes down, the supports rot away and the roof collapses. So you've got the floor of the house and then whatever junk you left lying on the floor when you abandoned your house, or maybe a bunch of broken pottery or whatever it may be. And then above that, you get the deposit from the roof. And then the walls will gradually decay and fall in. Um, once uh, once the roof has gone, the walls will come down very quickly. So now you've got, you've got the floor itself, you've got the broken stuff on the floor. On top of that, you've got the roof materials. On top of that, you've got the debris from the walls. And then if you're living at the foot of a hill, erosion will gradually carry dirt down and that dirt will then pile up on top of um, the, the debris from the walls of your house. And in the ideal case, it'll then just sit there for the archaeologist to come along. We start digging down and we've got this nicely stratified sequence um, with the, the remains from the house itself down at the bottom. If you live on the top of the hill, though, the opposite happens. Instead of dirt washing down, burying your house, it's all going to wash away. So gradually these layers will be eroded away. And often on the top of hills, we don't find anything. It's all been eroded away and gone. Or it might be eroded in patterns. You might have a gully running through the middle of your house. Or somebody might come along and dig a big hole down to the middle of your house, mixing up all the layers together and making it difficult for the archaeologist. Or they might come along... um, and this is how we get these sites we call tells in the Middle East, which are basically a dead flat landscape in Iraq, say. And then you get all these little lumps, uh, little bumps sticking up out of the dead flat landscape, which are thousands of years of accumulated debris. So somebody's house falls down. These processes go on. Somebody else comes along and says, that's a good place to build. <laughs> and you level the, flat, the, the, the ruins of this house, make it nice and flat, build another house on top. That falls down in turn. Somebody else comes along. And regularly, this sort of process, it can produce deposits 20, 30, 40 meters deep of houses, one on top of another, spanning two, 3,000 years in some cases. So all this different stuff is, is going on. And then you come along as the archaeologist and you want to dig this site. 
And nowadays we can see under the ground a little bit now, thanks to various mm -hmm. techniques we've got. Um, but you can't really see all that much under the ground. So you basically just got to start digging. And as a field worker, the big skill comes in being able to peel off these layers, basically in reverse order. You start, of course, with the most modern layer on the top and work your way down. So it's like a geologically stratified site. And the skill comes in being able to spot what's going on here. Because often these layers, they're all kind of the same color. They're all similar consistency. Um, if you miss some pit that's been dug down from on top, and um, if you miss that and you haven't realized there's a big hole was dug down and so material say from the fifth century AD is now just in terms of elevation is now down with stuff in the fifth century BC if you miss that pit you're going to jumble all this stuff together and completely mess up the site so yeah there's the skill is disentangling all this stuff and then it becomes just like mind-bogglingly complicated on a big site where you've got maybe tens of thousands of separate layers, separate deposits, and they don't necessarily overlap with each other. And you've got to keep track of all of them and keep them all in the proper sequence. And it's kind of fun in a way, if your mind runs <laughs> in that direction. It's kind of fun keeping on top of this stuff. But it, uh, it really it seriously makes your head hurt. I'm trying to keep track of it. I can also now start to understand why it is after a few years, four years, five years, 10 years, you might not have everything published from one site. It's yeah, and a, a, a lot of the information, even though we try to keep the most meticulous records we can, and we're very systematic about using exactly the same recording forms for every deposit we excavate, even so, a lot of the crucial information is actually inside people's heads. And it's not mm -hmm. what's written down in the forms, it's knowing how to put them together and knowing what was going on at that particular moment. And again, if you, if you don't strike quickly, that information starts getting lost. So when I'm thinking of these layers, it, it's see in my head, I, I had a completely false impression of what was going on. I was imagining now stupidly complete layers, right? But it's it, no, it, it's every, it, everything to fall in, in on itself, different layers, maybe even mixed together. Okay. Yeah, now in the ideal world, and this does sometimes happen, say you're excavating a village site and it's got all these different houses in it um, and they're all, all separate freestanding structures. Um, and so they fall down and each is its own set of deposits. In an ideal world, though, you will be able to detect overlaps between the material of different houses and put together this kind of stratigraphic chain from one end of the site to the other. So like, you know, two houses there, one falls down, a little bit later, the other one starts falling down. And part of the debris from the second house will overlap the debris from the first house, ideally. And so you'll be able to say, aha, house B fell down later than house A. And here, house, house A, a bit of its debris extends out the other direction onto house C. So now we've got this B, A, C sequence. And on you'll go, reconstructing this enormously elaborate 3D jigsaw puzzle, basically. Um, because in reality, that doesn't happen very much and usually and you usually end up with these discrete blobs of detailed stratigraphic sequences that you've then got to try to connect up to each other mm -hmm. but luckily because we have things like radiocarbon dating and various other techniques that within certain limits allow us to to fit these things together in your talks one of the things you often speak about or you have spoken about is uh, the level of violence that occurred in, in previous times. So, for example, uh, what number of people died from homicide in hunter-gatherer societies? I'm wondering, when you're actually doing digs, what evidence do we have for those numbers? H how do we know that, say, 10% of 
hunter-gatherers died via homicide, say? Yeah, I mean, there, there is direct evidence, but um, the... The, the scope for interpretation is enormous. And so um, say you know, one of the most obvious, well, what seems like the most obvious sort of evidence you could get for this is um, if you find a body with an arrowhead shot straight between the eyes, you get this bronze arrowhead wedged between the eye sockets and the skull. You say, Aha, something violent happened here. No one is probably, probably no one's going to dispute that. Um, but of course, there's a lot of different ways an arrowhead can get between your eyes. Uh, it can be a hunting accident, which, which must have happened. Um, it, it became very unfashionable in archaeological circles in the middle of the 20th century to say that the past was a very violent place. So people came up with some quite elaborate alternative explanations, like ritual is a big one. And we know from, from anthropologists that you do get these kind of scapegoating rituals in some societies where, say, you're a plague or famine or whatever afflicts your community some poor schmuck gets picked out as the source of the god's anger. And you have a ritual where you ritually drive this person out of the community with violence and maybe even kill them. And so rituals of this kind can produce um, deposits, produce skeletal remains that are not easy to tell apart from people who have actually been killed fighting a battle or in an ambush or something. Mm -hmm. So this enormous room for interpretation, which is where context becomes so important. And, and this is one reason why a lot of our archaeological evidence that ought to be helpful in talking about rates of violent death in prehistoric societies actually isn't. Um, because it's skeletons that were dug up 100 years ago where people were just going out with a gang of workmen, ripping these things out of the ground and tossing them in a museum storeroom. So we have no idea what the context of this material is. Mm. Um, on well-conducted excavations, you, you've got a much better chance of saying whether this really was a deliberate act of violence or not. And so one thing which um, archaeologists really like, the, the people who are interested in violence anyway, really like, is there's this particular sort of injury. Uh, we call it a parry fracture. And what a parry fracture is, is um, it's a snap in the left forearm of the skeleton. And the reason we get so excited about the left forearm is that if, if I'm a right-handed prehistoric hunter-gatherer and I come to you, come, I, I want to kill you. You've asked me this really difficult question. I said, I'm going to kill you. So I come at you and I've got my, my, little, um, what, my little stone axe. I'm going to smash your head in with a stone axe. I swing at you with my right hand. You will try to block the blow with your left arm. And so you get these very distinctive parry fractures. And so if we get context where... There's a higher than normal, because of course you can get that sort of fracture in all sorts of ways. So there's always going to be a certain number of these in the cemetery. If we get a higher than normal number of parry fractures combined with a higher than normal number of depression fractures on the left side of the skull, which is what we should expect if a right-handed person hits you with a stone axe, then we are beginning to... Um, beginning to get some fairly solid evidence here that we're dealing with a period of elevated levels of violence. If we find other kind of circumstantial evidence, I say fortifications, um, burials where people like to bury the dead with weapons, which we normally assume means not necessarily that you're a warrior or even that you ever 
struck anybody in anger. But it means that like, the, the image of a man mm -hmm. in this society is somebody who fights. Well, you, you dig up in the, the sad day when you die and they bury you somewhere, somebody comes and digs up your grave. We're highly unlikely to find an AK-47 in your grave because that's just not the dimensions of manhood that we want to celebrate in modern society on the whole. So you can put all these different bits of evidence together and there's the margins of error are enormous, but you can already, we can, I think, begin to form something of a picture of, of what these rates of violent death were like in the past. You sort of uh, made me curious. You, you were talking about these parifractures on the left hand. If you go back in history, were people right handed all the way back? Is this is if you look at hunter gatherers and even, you know, 15, 20,000, 40,000 years. Is there evidence that people were right-handed? Yeah, there is. Um, this, uh, uh, this is getting down into the weeds a little bit now, but um, with the sorts of strain and stress you get on wrists, elbows, and shoulders. Um, and we can show that proportions of right-handed people are roughly the same um, pretty much every period that we look at, including Neanderthals. It's not just a Homo sapiens kind of thing. Um, it's something you can see Neanderthals, Homo erectus, um, and I believe, uh, actually, I, I should know this, I don't, I, I believe it's largely true of chimpanzees as well. I believe they're mainly right-handed. I love the fact that we there's know a good this. Biological I don't know what it is, but there must be a good biological reason for this. Mm. Is, you know, talking about death, uh, <laughs> we usually think of death, at least for the individual, as being quite bad. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but I guess you, you need death in order for evolution to work and for regrowth and renewal and all these good things. And so at the level of society, in some sense, is death and destruction, is war and destruction necessary for the development of civilization? Well, I think the the best way to think about this is um, you look at the animal kingdom, pretty much every species of animal has evolved to be able to use violence, at least they're sort of bigger, more complex animals, evolved to be able to use violence in some way to pursue their goals. And so like if you're a carnivorous animal, obviously you have to kill to live. Uh, if you're a lion, if, you, if you're a pacifist lion, things are going to go really badly for you. So every species of animal has evolved to be able to use violence. And we are just the same as all the other animals in that way. We, if we get into an argument, we can resolve it through violence. If we're hungry, we can resolve our hunger through killing something or killing another human and stealing its food, or for that matter, killing another human and eating that human. If we can use violence to resolve these problems. And um, biologists will talk about each species having what they call an evolutionary, evolutionarily stable strategy in the use of violence. And so it's like for every species of animal, you can be not violent enough or you can be too violent or you can have just the right amount of violence. So like, again, if you're a lion, if you're a pacifist lion, you starve. So that's not enough violence that you're using. If you use too much violence, if you're a lion that thinks every single difficulty can be resolved by violence, you're going to die sooner than a lion who uses a bit less violence. Because the risk of getting an injury is always there. Even if you're a super alpha lion, the risk of getting injured is always there. And if you're a lion out in the savannah or something, if you get injured, you're going to get infected. There's a pretty good risk, even with a small injury, that will kill you. So mm -hmm. if you use too much violence, you drop out of the gene pool again. So each species tends to evolve toward the 
reproductively most advantageous amount and form of violence for that species. And this is something a biologist has studied this very intensely. And they talk about species being either hawks or doves. There are ones who basically have high levels of interpersonal violence and ones that have low levels of interpersonal violence. And humans, um, you know, we, again, you know, we are just the same as all these other animals. The way we differ from all the other animals though, which is a, a huge way, um, is that other animals, like say, if you look at apes, um, you know, all apes can be traced back to a species that the biologists call protopan um, that flourished up to about seven and a half million years ago in Central Africa. Um, each species of ape in the, in the world today uses different amounts and different forms of violence because they've evolved away from the shared ancestor. And we are the same as all the other apes in this regard. We've evolved away from the shared ancestor. But um, for the other species of apes to change the amount of violence they use, they have to evolve biologically into a new kind of animal. Mm -hmm. And that's that has happened. That's how we have chimpanzees and bonobos and orangutans and gorillas. They've all evolved into new kinds of animals. And we are in the process of doing that because you know, we, we are obviously evolving biologically still, just like all the other animals. What makes us different, though? is that our biological evolution gave us these brains that made us capable of cultural evolution. And so we can look at a situation and figure out, hey, I could try to solve this situation with violence, but it's not going to pay. And this, I say, this is what makes us so different from all the other animals. Across the last 10,000 years or so, it seems like humans have looked at the world around them, decided when to use violence and when not to use it. And increasingly, as time has gone on, used less and less violence. Like, so, you know, a job like mine, university professor, uh, I go in, uh, you're running a seminar with my graduate students, and because my graduate students are all delightful people. I love them all. But if, in your know, hypothetical case, one of them got really obnoxious with me, I could try to solve that problem by pulling out a gun and shooting the graduate student. But that, I, I don't do that. And you know, why is that? Well, because that is a really, really stupid strategy for a professor to pursue. You know, I live in a world where my chance of dying violently is yeah, one in 10,000 or something. My graduate students are not a threat to my existence. They may be annoying, they're not a threat to my existence. We have developed all these rules and regulations to punish people who use too much violence. And um, when I was writing this book, War, What Is It Good For?, about the long-term history of violence, seemed to me that the, the big thing driving rates of violence has been the evolution of states and governments. Mm -hmm. um, not because governments are necessarily run by really, really nice people who want to see all their subjects living nice, peaceful, calm lives. It's that if, if you are running a government. What you want is quiet subjects who farm their fields and pay their taxes and don't give you any trouble. What you don't want is a bunch of wild-eyed lunatics running around killing each other, burning each other's farms down, destroying each other's crops, unable to pay taxes. So if that happens, you, the ruler, can no longer have a harem full of beautiful young women and, um, and all, all that other essential stuff that rulers like to have. You can't have that anymore if you have anarchy and chaos within your society. So it's like this selective pressure, again, it's an evolutionary kind of process, selective pressure operating on rulers to suppress the amount of violence within the society. And um, 
You're a bit like the biologists talk about evolutionarily stable strategies for different species of animals. There's evolutionarily stable strategies for different species of societies. And so if you're in a hunter-gatherer society, you can tolerate levels of violence that just would not work in a modern society. It seems an enormous variation, but it seems like maybe... If you lived in a Stone Age hunter-gatherer society, yeah, you had like a one in 10 chance of dying violently. If you live in the modern world, your chance of dying violently, on globally, the average here, is now way under 1%. It's about 0.6% chance of dying violently globally. And obviously this is geographically uneven. If you live in Denmark, we always use Denmark as the extreme example, you have like a one in 100,000 chance of dying violently. If you live in Syria, obviously your chances are significantly higher. Um, but the the pressure on governments seen over the very, very long run, because of course you get anomalies, guys like Adolf Hitler, but the pressure on governments <laughs> has been to pacify your society. And also actually what accelerates that pressure is the competition between states as well. The more you can get your society to be functional, smooth running, low levels of internal violence, the better equipped you are to raise the forces you need to compete, if necessarily violently, against neighboring states. You've got these sort of two levels of competition going on here. And different kinds of societies are better or worse at suppressing violence. So modern democratic societies are really, really good at doing this. Um, and I think, you know, obviously, it seems to me, Part of that is that the leaders are so much more answerable to the people than leaders used to be. If you're a 17th century king, you are kind of answerable to your people, but not like a modern president who gets elected every four years. And so I think it's, it's actually, uh, it's not often you get to say that you study violence and you're telling a happy story, but it sort of is a happy story. We have relentlessly driven down rates of violent death. Um, the dark side of the story is that we have done that by systematically raising our ability to kill people. So it's like the more scary the governments get, the more capable they are of killing people, the less often they have to kill people because we're all terrified of doing something that might incur the state to deploy its violence against us. But their potential for violence, of course, goes up and up. Like mm -hmm. they have nuclear weapons. Um, now we don't have enough nukes in the world now to kill everybody at one go. But in the 1980s, we did. And so that is the, the, the scary dark side of the story. I, I'm just wondering, in uh, there's a bird in the background. Is it possible to close the door or? Uh... Uh, yeah, I, I can do that. I think just... we have uh, we have a whole bunch of peacocks. Um, uh. <laughs> ago, one male peacock just wandered up out of the woods. We live up in the mountains in the mm. redwood forest, and he started crying for mates. And gradually, more and more peacocks showed up. Now we've got about twenty of them, just sort of wandering. <laughs> And I guess next year you're going to have more and more as they start having offspring. Yes, yeah. Um, you, what, what do you do? So I got the dog in here with me as well. He seems unsure what he wants to do. Are you going out? Okay. Yeah, I mean, you get to watch evolution in action uh, here, basically. Um, <laughs> the more of the prey species you get in your house, all of a sudden the more predators show up and then you don't have any prey species anymore and then the predators die out too and then it's just, the cycle starts again so you know we get to see it all very red in tooth and claw 
is um uh, back to the uh, sorry I, I jumped off the frame of thought but um so there's no there's no evidence at all that as we head towards a more peaceful society that there's going to be some sort of stagnation in technology or anything like that I think that that's a really hard question to answer because in some ways, definitely war has been an accelerator of technological progress. When you think, say, something like air travel, so much of the innovations were driven by the military and not only the, the internet, all these things are driven by military innovation. Clearly, um, in certain ways, war or the threat of war are, are, are real spurs for innovation. And yet, a lot of economists will say, and I think absolutely rightly, um, it's only in certain ways, because there's a, you know, a certain amount of wealth available for investment in innovation. And maybe the amount being invested in it will go up in times of technological anxiety, like you think of the space race, say, in the 50s and 60s. Um, but the... Um, Investment being soaked off by the government to spend on uh, new ideas for military techniques, that's all been taken from somewhere else. And so you'll see innovations in some things, sure. What is harder to quantify is what would tech entrepreneurs have done with that wealth if they had not been tempted by high rates of return for investing in, say, the aerospace industry or the nuclear weapons industry. And that's something, I mean, economists do try to figure this out by trying to work out you know, counterfactual scenarios where you don't have the outlets of high-tech mm -hmm. military, uh, military industrial complex. But it's just, it's very hard to know what, what we would now be better at and what we would now be worse at if we weren't spending so much on, on the military industrial machinery. I guess also after a war or a plague or some devastation to the population, let's say a situation in which a lot of the male population died, say, I, I can imagine situations in which that occurs. Mm -hmm. Does does that cause a shift in, in the supply and demand of labor that then has knock-on effects socially? And, and so are these sort of events necessary for social development, perhaps? Yeah, again, I... Not sure that I would say necessary. It's it shapes what happens definitely. So if you have a big war where a lot of the military age men die off, then uh, in the, the generation after that, of course, you're going to have a, sur a surplus of women, marriageable women, uh, shortage of marriageable men, um, and that's going to have all kinds of, of distorting effects on the economy and, and cultural development generally. Um, whether that sort of thing is necessary, though. Um, I don't know, it just seems much less obvious to me that it's necessary. Um, if you, I mean, say, if you look at a particular historical situation and say, well, was a big killer for the men necessary to produce the specific outcome that really happened? Then sometimes, sure, the answer is definitely going to be yes. If you're asking it more generally, though, is it necessary to keep killing a lot of young men? Um, which was a very popular idea in the late 19th century. You, you sort of, you've got to, you've got to purge the race and renew the blood. You've got to have these big wars to go out there and keep our men virile and strong. So, a very popular idea. M much less so now. I'm glad to say. Um, but yeah, I think the evidence for that, and I'm not sure that it really makes much sense, actually, um, mm. whatever the evidence might be, to think you've got to keep killing lots and lots of young men uh, just in general terms. Hmm. I'm surprised at your answer since you wrote War, What Is It Good For? I, I was expecting... <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess the conclusion I reached writing that book was that war has been good in one specific sense, which um, <clears throat> when 
when you talk about it to an evolutionist, they're going to say, well, duh, you think that's a remarkable conclusion? That This is always true. War has been good for creating institutions which basically have been putting war out of business. So it's like you know, any sort of evolutionary process. Say a, a bunny rabbit learns, say bunny rabbits evolve to run faster. That's good for bunny rabbits because now it's harder for foxes to catch them. Um, so the slow foxes now starve to death as they can't fa- catch the bunnies anymore so foxes evolved to run faster because only the fast running foxes are alive to breed anymore so the foxes run faster catch up with more of the bunnies and eat them so the the bunnies evolving toward being faster running it it sort of it puts itself out of business by having these knock-on effects of creating faster running foxes to even it all out again that's it that is basically what has happened with human violence so um it's drove the formation of governments and governments and suppressed rates of violence in their societies. I guess we're turning more to... Sorry. There's not much good for anything else, uh, as far as I can see. I guess we're sort of moving towards economic warfare and covert operations and less direct and obvious violence as time goes on. Yeah. um, And I think... In some ways, what's happening now is entirely unprecedented. Obviously, there's never been anything like drones or cyber warfare, any of these kinds of things in the past. In other ways, though, this is just exactly what has happened before over and over again. And in quite a few ways, I think the the period we've been living through the last 30 30 odd years, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, since the the US became the the sole superpower, in a lot of ways, it's not wildly different from what happens in the mid and late 19th century when the British Empire functions as a kind of sole superpower, a global cop, people uh, sometimes, historians sometimes call it. And it, it wasn't like the British Empire had the military power to take on and defeat every other country in the world. You're nowhere near that. But the British had enough wealth and enough naval dominance to be able to project their power around the globe. That it like it tipped the scale, tipped the balance in the analysis when other um, governments, their leaders are considering going to war with each other. One of the first questions they always ask is, what will the British do? Um, Will the British be in favour of us fighting or against us? And if they're against us, can they make our lives impossible, primarily through financial mechanisms? And if that's the case, then we're not going to go to war if the British are just going to mess it all up for us. So like in the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln's biggest nightmare was not that the British are going to intervene in the American Civil War, and the way some people thought they might on the behalf of the slave owners who are generating the cotton supplies that British cotton manufacturing need. That was never a possibility. Lincoln was terrified that the British would just announce that they thought the Confederacy was a legitimate government. The minute they do that, the financial markets open up to the Confederacy All these ships are going to start coming from Europe, bringing goods to the Confederacy. If the Union maintains its naval blockade, it's going to have to to sink British and French ships. The Union will find itself at war with Britain and France. The whole thing falls to pieces if the British say the Confederacy is legitimate. The British never did, and so um, Lincoln, in the end, didn't have to worry about this. But during this period when the British have this kind of global authority and power, major interstate wars decline not completely to zero, but very close to zero. And what you see instead is new forms of using force to settle disputes. Governments are saying, okay, I can't just go out there and invade Russia or something. That's not going to fly. 
What can I do? Well, I can subvert the Russian financial system. <laughs> this is a familiar sounding territory we're in here. It's a golden age of terrorism in the late 19th century, anarchists in particular running around blowing up presidents. Um, and it's a golden age of Islamist violence as well, um, where the British Empire is getting established from uh, this sort of arc from northern India through Central Asia down into East Africa, where you're getting these Islamist regimes coming up, uh, challenging the British government's colonial um, policies, but trying to do so in ways that don't lead to actual warfare and the British invading. So it's like the, the, the Islamist leaders, there's this guy the British called the Mad Mahdi, who lived in Sudan, who organizes a big Islamist uprising in Sudan. And the British, uh, the, 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 the Mad Mahdi, uh, who is not mad at all, the Mad Mahdi is trying to calculate how much violence can I use before the British say that this has risen to the level of threat where we have to intervene really forcefully against this guy? And if I can be just aggressive enough without triggering a massive British response, then I will be able to further my goals of creating an Islamist regime in the Sudan, undermining Egypt, bringing that over to Islamist rule as well. Um, in the end, the Mad Mahdi goes too far, largely, well, partly at least because he's provoked by an equally mad British officers out there in the Sudan, and the British find themselves sort of dragged into military in intervention out there. Because the British, I mean, you're a bit like, I would say, a bit like US policy um, you know, since 9-11, most people in the US government don't really want to go around invading all these places around the world because it's really, really expensive. And the domestic political costs are going to be staggering as well. And people, are, you know, in spite of what we often say about them, people in government are not stupid. They may not be very nice, but they're not stupid. And they know that if you get involved in counter-terrorism, counter-insurgency, you're going to end up torturing people and burning down houses and murdering civilians. It, this is just the way these wars go and that is a really hard sell domestically we really don't want to get into this um, unless we find ourselves in a situation where there's really no other alternative and so you've got all these different players maneuvering with all the they all got different agendas but a lot of what's been going on i would say in the last 30 years strikingly similar to what went on in the late 19th century because we've once again been in a, a situation with a global cop who can deter um, near-peer state rivals from going to war. And so what you get is this fluorescence of alternative forms of warfare. And I think the really scary thing now is that um, we can also see some very clear analogies. A lot of political scientists have pointed to this between um, what happened at the very end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, with the rise of Germany, and what's going on now with the rise of China, mm -hmm. where you've got a strategic rival to the Globocop who is dissatisfied with the global order and um, begins saying, uh, definitely in the German case, possibly in the Chinese case, begins saying, we are so dissatisfied with the global order that we are willing to take a risk on how far we can go before it sets off disaster. And we, late 19th century Germans, early 21st century Chinese, we look around at the global situation and what we see is that the global cup is in decline. 
the global cup is less financially able less politically able um less willing to intervene forcefully if we are pushing the envelope in the south china sea say the global cup is less willing to do anything and every time we get away with pulling some stunt that embarrasses the global cup the global cup declines a little bit more and we can mm. keep pushing and keep pushing and of course in the early 20th century this leads to disaster in uh, the first world war and what a lot of people worry about now is that we are in an era when great power warfare is coming back because this stable global cup dominated international order is breaking down and uh, we, we could conceivably be on the path back to 1914 but this time with nuclear weapons so that's the the unhappy side of this story and the happy side is the happy side is well seen on the long term we have basically been working it out things have happened like the first and second world wars which you know, that's nobody's idea of working it out but um these are these enormous mega wars these blips in the long-term landscape and the scene over the 200 400 2000 4000 year um spectrum rates of violent death have been coming down but you get these occasional disasters where the forces driving down rates of violent death, it just all goes to pieces. And then the potential of governments to kill millions of people gets unleashed. And of course, now, now really is different because even in World War II, Hitler did not have the power to systematically go around the world killing every single human being. It might have crossed his mind that that would be nice, but he couldn't do it. Now we don't have enough nuclear weapons to kill everybody all at once, but we can build them. And um, in you know, a really truly disturbing thing that's going on now, a few um, nuclear powers are beginning building more nuclear warheads after 30 mm -hmm. odd years of consistently falling numbers. Now they're rising. Chinese are building them. Even the British in the latest um, strategic review, British are going to start building more nuclear warheads. This is really, really bad. And I suppose Australia is purchasing nuclear submarines for the first time. Exactly. What, what's your yes. what's your view on so when you hear uh, higher ups in the Chinese government talking about the century of humiliation, especially for someone who's studied East and West over long periods of time, what's your view of that that idea of the century of humiliation, and does it sort of worry you this sort of rhetoric? Yeah, I, I think the century of humiliation is very, very real. I mean, starting in the 1840s onto the 1940s, Western powers could really dictate more or less whatever they wanted to Chinese governments. And the Chinese, um, periodically, the Chinese governments would try to resist these Western dictates. Um, but it always ended badly for them. So the century of humiliation is very real. And it's, I think, not in the least bit surprising that people in China are super touchy about this. And that if you are a Chinese political leader and you're having difficulties in domestic politics, the, the sort of instinctive reaction is to stir something up overseas so you can talk about the century of humiliation and the need to be strong against these foreigners and so it, you know it's not in the least bit surprising that the people do this quite understandable but it is still as you say this is very very dangerous stuff and this of course this is the kind of rhetoric hitler used very much in the 1930s he didn't have to look back very far of course to remind germans of the disasters that ensued at the end of the first world war and this national humiliation they've been going through so this is very very dangerous and, and troubling stuff and um 
I mean, my sense of the longer term picture here is that uh, it was, I mean, I, I tend to say nothing is really inevitable in history, but some things are much more likely than others. And it was highly likely that China was going to emerge as a global economic superpower. I mean, the timing was open to question, like, say, um, under under the Maoist uh regime, China actually had very rapid economic growth, not as rapid as it should have had, but even with the level of bungling and brutality and stupidity that the Maoists committed, they still had really rapid economic growth. Now they've gotten rid of a lot of that sort of idiocy they were doing then. Um, their economic growth have been absolutely breathtaking. And I think that was always likely to happen. Once China gets out of the civil wars of the, the century of humiliation, rapid economic growth is always likely to happen. China was always likely to emerge as one of the top couple of superpowers in the world at some point in the 21st century. The only question really was, when is this going to happen? Well, actually, no, one of two questions. When is it going to happen? And how exactly is everybody going to manage it? Which I think is the, the really big question. Um, is the best way to manage this, say, the way a lot of Western governments started talking about in the 1990s? Uh, George W. Bush uh, in the early 2000s. Bush has this line, trade with China and time is on our side. And the thinking very much in Western uh, academic and government circles was that in order to grow rich, China will have to westernize. It will have to become more liberal, open up its markets, become more intellectually and politically open, because that is the only viable path toward a, a modern, vibrant economy. So just trade with China. Time is on our side. China will become like the West. Is that the way to do it? Or is the way to, for Westerners to react to this by saying, well, China, as it gets richer, becomes more of a threat. It becomes more of a challenge to the global cup. It gets harder and harder for the Americans to police the global, uh, the, the, the you know, free movement on the oceans, free movement of people and goods, all the, the kind of free market things the American economy is built on. It's harder to protect that as China gets richer and richer, if the Chinese want to challenge this. So perhaps the answer is actually to contain China, the way the US contained the Soviet Union, even though China is a completely different animal from the Soviet Union. And we're so, our economy, of course, so interwoven with those containment, it's just very difficult to picture how that would work. Of course, the Chinese get a vote in this as well. Is the way to handle their growth the way they were doing in the 1990s, where they kept thinking up these new names for it? They talked about China's rise to greatness, then discovered this worried Westerners. So they talked about China's peaceful rise and discovered that just the word rise bothered Westerners. So they changed it to peaceful development. And they kept trying to make nice with the, the Western powers that were running the international global system and um, fit China's geopolitical ambitions into an American dominated vision of how the Pacific worked. Since the, the, the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, it seems like Chinese leaders have rethought that strategy. And they're now increasingly, at least it seems to me, increasingly saying, um, yeah, uh, our economic development is beginning to experience problems, and some, at least, of these problems are the result of an American-dominated international financial order. So we are going to push to change that order, even if it means provoking the global cop. So there's all these different balls in the air, all these different players involved in this, trying to calculate 
what is going to be the best way to handle the, the almost inevitable Chinese economic growth for them. And of course, there are extremists on both sides who say the best way to do this is war. A preventive war now um, against China, humiliate the Communist Party, cause its collapse. This will set Chinese economic development back 20, 30 years. That's the way to deal with the growth of Chinese power. And of course, the hotheads in Beijing, there are some hotheads who say the thing to do now is land the helicopters, the paratroopers on Taiwan now. And if the Americans try to respond militarily, we in China have sufficient power now that we will defeat them. Uh, there'll be a short, sharp war. If the war drags on for months and years, America will defeat us. But that will never happen. We'll win a quick war, utterly humiliate the Americans, break their power in the Pacific. China now becomes the world number one power. And some variant on this say, what if the Americans don't intervene? We invade Taiwan, take control of Taiwan. Americans don't intervene. The US is humiliated. It's shown as an impotent power. There's no strength there. We in China become even more the number one power. And these sorts of people, these are very, very much in minorities, as far as I can make out. But again, it's very like the situation back around 1910. You've got similar range of policy options in Washington, Beijing, as you had in London and Berlin, similar kinds of maneuverings and similar uncertainties. I mean, nobody knew that Archduke Franz Ferdinand was going to get shot in 1914. Nobody knew that all the great powers were going to have a sort of collective seizure and handle the aftermath so incredibly badly. I mean, just nobody could foresee any of that. I guess also in recent his history with America being humiliated, let's say in Afghanistan, this doesn't help the position. Yes, yeah, the, the American, I think the, the US, it's got itself into a position that is alarmingly like what the British were doing in the run up to the First World War. That um, the, the two wars differ in a lot of ways, but the Iraq war and the, the British, the Boer war, the British fought against the South African independence movement around 1900. There's certain disturbing similarities in both of these. Um, in both of them, the world's great superpower got involved in a war against um, guys who basically had no military structure whatsoever and yet could still make it really, really difficult to beat them. And in both cases, the superpower discovers the way you beat these guys is by really being nasty. Um, like Rumsfeld uh, talked <coughs> early on in the wars in, uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, he talked about going to the dark side, by which he meant um, you know, detaining uh, suspects without any kind of due process, um, shipping people off to Eastern Europe where they can be tortured, all kinds of stuff that just doesn't fly in a democratic country as news of this leaks out. The British did even worse stuff than this in the Boer War. They realized that we're never going to be able to defeat these highly mobile Boer insurgents um, unless we can constrain their mobility. And the, the, the population in South Africa is very sympathetic to them. So they move from farm to farm, getting fed. They, they raid on horseback. They disappear before this lumbering British army can catch up with them. And again, you know, it sounds very like Iraq and Afghanistan. So what do we do? We round up the entire civilian population in South Africa. 
Africa. And we herd them into concentration camps. The British invent the concentration camp. And in these camps, tens of thousands of women and children died of disease in these camps. Um, but the thing that matters is now there's nobody to feed the Boer commandos out there on the veldt. And they are going to starve to death. And we run hundreds of miles of barbed wire fences across the countryside, demolish all the farms, build these concrete blockhouses, fill them with guys with guns. Gradually, we will starve the Boers to their knees. They will surrender. And that's kind of what happened in the end. The Boers more or less gave up in the same way as um, a lot of the insurgents more or less gave up in Iraq and for a while in Afghanistan too. And then the British did what the Americans also did in Iraq and Afghanistan, was redefine victory. You define victory down from where you started. Because uh, in Iraq, Afghanistan, South Africa, victory was set at a really high level at the beginning. You know, basically, we turn Iraq into Switzerland. Then we've won. And, and this is kind of what the British were saying about South Africa. We turned South Africa into Wales, and then we've won. And which idiotic war goal and they end up in South Africa basically cutting a deal with the guys who had been the Boer commando leaders so like Kruger becomes the founding father of the South African Republic Kruger was a terrorist and the British to say no no we decided he actually wasn't a terrorist that was something else that he was doing you know just like the US ends up sitting down with the Taliban to negotiate um, a settlement to get out of Afghanistan because you have to I mean these things are always their political struggles. The violence is, you know, like Clausewitz said about war, it's an extension of politics with a mixture of other means. You use violence to attain your political goals because you think it's going to work. It's only ever a tool that you're using to get someplace. So yeah, I mean, the, the similarities between some of the things going on now and some of the things going on 120 years ago are, are really kind of worrying. I want to, uh, towards the end of, of our questioning, I want to, or this interview, I want to circle back around to what history can teach us about the future. But I think I want to pull the conversation back a little bit to uh, speaking about, so I asked you about what, what impact war had on the development of societies. And I want to ask you about the impact that uh, religion and, and, and culture can have on the development of technology and, and, and uh, the development in society. So, you know, Especially recently, people have talked about how, for example, uh, the church suppressed Galileo or you're talking about suppression of um, research into evolution, say. Uh, this is sort of the, the, the view that people paint of, of what the church does with science in the modern era. But is is this sort of uh, missing the point a little bit? Is Is... Is religion necessary in order to develop large, organized states in the first place, without which we would never have even gotten to science and we would ne never would have had Galileo in the first place? Yeah, yeah. Um, the religious dimension of long-term history is, is, is one of the big things that's been going on, obviously, throughout human history. And um, a lot of archaeologists will say now that probably the first organized communities, first governments, these have a lot to do with religion. They're going right back deep into prehistory, probably certainly 30,000 years ago, maybe 40,000 years ago, we're back to the point where we're beginning to do the first evidence of kind of uh, humans who be, behave recognizably like modern humans. Religion is one of the big things that they do. Right back into these very early times, when we see people 
investing lots of energy in something. It's very often religion that they're investing it in. And um, the first great powerful rulers that we hear about are people who um, have persuaded their fellows that the, these new leaders have, uh, at the very least, have privileged links to the supernatural sphere. And this can take all, all manner of forms. In the extreme case, ancient Egypt, a lot of Egyptian pharaohs persuaded other Egyptians that the pharaoh actually was a god, uh, was an incarnate, reincarnated god walking around here among us on earth. Um, other societies, they go less far. And it might be that the, the king is somebody who persuades you that the king, he's a demigod, like his dad was a god or his granddad was a god or something like this. And then you get this sort of more dilute version still. You're not actually a god yourself, um, but you do have special contact to the gods. You can talk to the gods in a way that other people can't. You can receive oracles from the gods. So you can ask the gods a question, which the gods will answer, but they won't do that for other people. And the logic behind this seems to be like, if, if, if I believe that you really can talk to the gods and find out what the gods want, then I would be a damn fool not to do what you say. Why would I not do what you say? You know what the gods want. The gods know everything. So obviously it's stupid not to do what the gods say. Now, of course, archaeologists on the whole, you know, we don't believe in ancient Egyptian gods or anything like that. So we tend to think these pharaohs were not actually gods. You know, we're very cynical lot. We're not talking to the gods on a regular basis. Um, so the, the question becomes, well, how do people make this work? And you know, given that probably the pharaoh doesn't know what the gods want any better than anybody else does. Um, Possibly pharaohs do have slightly better information than other people, because once you've established one of these systems, because you can surround yourself with the best informed people and get their advice. Not that that seems to do modern politicians much good a lot of the time, but you, you at least got that sort of advantage. But one of the most popular theories is um, if we can assume that the rulers had even just average levels of competence and foresight and judgment, then... Um, if the ruler is able to persuade other people that he, because it's almost always he, he has privileged access to the supernatural sphere. And if the other people believe this, that will give that ruler a slight advantage over rival rulers who are not able to persuade people of this. Because like, say I say to my, my people, um, go out there and dig these irrigation ditches to irrigate this field because the gods say so. And uh, you believe me, so you go out and you irrigate the ditch, irrigate the field. And that's, you know, other things being equal, the chances are that is going to have some economic benefits for us. And so we're going to be better off. If you don't believe that the gods are telling you this stuff, you're all going to start arguing about this and saying, no, let's not do that. Let's do something else. Let's not do anything at all. If I can persuade you that I do know what the gods want, I'm going to have this just little bit of an advantage over the other guy. In times of war, if you believe my plans are sanctioned by the gods, Maybe your morale is going to be a little bit higher than if you don't believe it. Maybe you're more like slightly more likely to obey the orders. Maybe you're slightly more likely to stand your ground and fight a bit longer than you would if you didn't believe the gods were on your side. And again, other things being equal, two generals with equally good armies, equally good judgment. The one who's got that slight advantage of morale is going to win a little bit more often. And over the long run, Oh, you repeat this this game over and over again. Maybe that was actually enough to push societies because this seems to be a pretty global phenomenon. This semi-divine rule. Maybe that's enough to push them down this path um, 
toward the godlike kings. I mean, basically, pretty much every pre-modern society we see, the ruler has some claim to divine sanction going on. And of course, even in the modern world, countries that have maintained their monarchies, like Britain, um, Queen Elizabeth II, I mean, she comes across as this nice, <coughs> nice old lady with a will of iron, a rather terrifying old lady, actually. Um, but uh, she actually rules uh, Dei Gratias, by the grace of God. When she was crowned, she was anointed with holy oil. She was literally touched by God, raised above the rest of us, so that in, in theory, she is more than mortal. That is why everybody in Britain should do what she says. That is why, in principle, at least since 1688, Nothing Parliament does becomes law unless the monarch approves it. I mean, we don't know what would happen if the monarch actually said no. That would probably get very, very ugly. But you know, in principle, th this is sort of hung up. This is an extraordinary thing. This is the longest living institution in human history. Remarkable kind of thing. So yeah, religion is absolutely central to the long-term human story, which makes the, the tide of rising secularism over the last couple of centuries, makes this even more remarkable. I guess also there's at an even simpler level, if, say, for example, you and I share the same religion, then we also probably share the same moral framework. And so when we interact with each other, we know how to expect the other person's going to uh, respond to whatever I do. And maybe this is sort of a glue that holds larger societies together. When you're going to meet people you've never met before and people who've never met people you know before. <laughs> Yeah, this is something um, economic historians have become very interested over the last 30, 40 years in, in trust, the role of trust in economic exchange, because, you know, markets work more efficiently when uh, the, the actors are able to trust one another, able to rely on each other's word. And so um, one of the big questions becomes, what can societies do to bolster trust, which of course will then lower your transaction costs in the marketplace if you don't have to check every single thing the person you, uh, you're transacting with is doing. And yeah, religious communities definitely seem to function in this way. They're not the only kind of institution out there to um, to lower the costs of trading in the marketplace. So uh, I mean, one of my colleagues at Stanford, a guy named Avner Greif, did this really, really important book looking at um, medieval trading communities in the Mediterranean. And he found that kinship networks being related to people. This was a huge thing as well. Uh, belong, belonging to the same synagogues and same churches, that was huge. Kinship next, networks were huge. Um, institutions like setting up, say you're, you're based in Cairo, you're a Jewish merchant in Cairo, and you're doing a lot of trade with the Muslim Spanish merchants, Muslim uh, Arab merchants in Spain. What you want to do, if you possibly can, is set up a, a Jewish merchant on a permanent basis in Barcelona somewhere. He lives there year round. He interacts constantly with the locals and he is your representative. So you go out there and um, the local guy will say to the local Arab merchants, oh, yeah, I know this guy. He's reliable. You can trust him. Any problems come up, come to me. You know, obviously, this mm -hmm. the, the merchant from Cairo can sail off and disappear. You never see him again. But I'm here. I'm always going to be here. If there's a problem, you come to me. I will work this out. I know people back in Cairo. I'll make it all work properly. And all these people find all these different networks to bolster trust. And I guess I mean, my, my feeling generally about the 
part religion has played in the longer historical story. Because some people will say, oh, clearly religion is the most important factor. It's caused the rise of trust, or others will say it's caused the rise of genocide and all kinds of terrible things. All of these institutions, they are mechanisms people can use to get what they want. So if you want to bolster trust within a trading community, religion can be a really useful tool to use. If you want to get your people to commit genocide, religion can be a really useful tool to use. And so you, you'll see things like the Catholic Church. Some people will say oh, one of the worst institutions in history, the Inquisition, all these terrible things that Jesuits did. Others will say one of the most beneficial institutions in history. You look at the role of some of the early Catholic friars in stopping the conquistadors from massacring all the native populations in the Americas. You look at what the church has sometimes done to protect the poor and the weak against oppression. Um, it seems to me religion is an instrument you can use, it, nothing more and nothing less. If you live in a peaceful, well-ordered society, on the whole, religion tends to function to further that peace. Um, and, you know, on the whole, very few churches in countries like Denmark or Canada are encouraging people to go out there and kill each other anymore. Um, whereas if, when, if you live in a very violent, unstable country, Religion often contributes to that violence. It becomes one of the tools people use to foster violence, to persuade people that using violence is right. So I guess, I mean, I, I would say you know, the one sentence summary of what is the role of religion in history is depends on what you want to do. Hmm. I guess uh, ultimately as well, your moral framework is going to direct what you're able to achieve. So what I mean by that is, if you look at our society, we sort of see it as a moral good that there's a certain amount of inequality. You know, in capitalism, mm -hmm. there's, we say to ourselves that uh, a little bit of inequality, we don't want huge inequality, but a little bit of inequality is sort of coupled with positive um, uh, drive and productivity. Uh, whereas on the other hand, we can imagine a society which, in which everything is completely egalitarian, which sounds wonderful. But on the other hand, if if you share everything completely equally, then why should I personally go ahead and be productive and come up with new ideas if I don't benefit in some commensurate way? And so I guess I, I guess one two questions I have is if you look back, and I know the research you do is over long periods of time. So when you <laughs> and I know that you also look specifically at morality in in cultures. So if do we know, you know, how did the morality of hunter-gatherers, say, differ to what we currently uh, see today? And did that, did, and if there is a difference, did the difference precede technological development or was it the other way around? Yeah, these are fascinating questions. And um, one of the things that... <clears throat> Like opinion poll takers consistently report, it doesn't matter where in the world you are or who you're talking to, one of the things they consistently report is that everybody wants the world to be fair. Fairness is one of the absolute human universals. And if you look at the historical record, this is something you know, pretty much everybody seems to have agreed on throughout history. They want the world to be fair. The, what differs, though, is what we think fairness means. And so... Um, Say somebody like well Adolf Hitler, uh, tends to come up a lot in these discussions. Adolf Hitler wanted a fair world, but his vision of fairness was that 
The world is unfair because of all those Jews. Those Jews are corrupting and poisoning everything. A fair world will be a Jew-free world. Therefore, techniques to get rid of the Jews. This is a way of furthering fairness and pursuing a good and moral and just um, uh, ethical order. So we can deport all the Jews. We, they talked about shipping them off to Madagascar at one point to be part of his uh, idea, or just to ship them off anyway, get them out of Germany. And then as the war goes on, it comes up with these increasingly radical ideas. No, the only way to get a Jew-free world is uh, logically kill all the Jews. So, I mean, Hitler was very consistent. He had a vision of fairness and he pursued it. It's just a vision that to most of us today is just absolutely unacceptable, completely evil and wicked. Not because we've stopped wanting a fair world, but because we define fairness in a very, very different way from Adolf Hitler. And um, looking at the long run, I think you do see these big patterns in um, how people have thought about fairness. And it's like they're, they're variations, all variations on a very, very simple theme. There seems to be two ways of thinking about the whole of humanity. And one is you look around at people and you say, hey, you know, people, people are all pretty much the same. So it's fair and just to treat everybody pretty much the same because we are pretty much the same. Then the other way is to look around at all the people and say, hey, everybody's really different. I mean, have you not noticed how different we all are? So it, it's fair and just to treat everybody differently. It would be completely unjust to treat everybody the same. And you have very, very simple ideas, but their consequences diametrically opposed, at least in certain areas. And so um, the idea that everybody's the same and everybody should be treated the same, one, some people would say a logical consequence of that is that when you talk about equality, what you're thinking of is equality of outcome. We should all have the same outcomes. We should all have pretty much the same amount of wealth, the same health care, the same life chances. That's what fairness really requires. If your vision of the world is that everybody is different, then it would be totally unfair to force everybody into the same mold and make them have uh, the same uh, outcomes. The, the kind of equality you're likely to pursue if you believe that everybody's fundamentally different. There you're going to want equality of opportunity. Everybody should be given the same opportunities to develop their character and do what they want to do with their lives. We should all be free to do whatever we want unless our freedom impinges on somebody else's freedom. You've got to have some limits on freedom. Um, but freedom, uh, equality of opportunity is the thing that counts. And on the whole, in um, hunter-gatherer societies, uh, equality of outcome. That's the sort of fairness they tended to value above everything else. And I think there are really good economic reasons why that would be so. Sharing was a really big deal in most hunter-gatherer societies because it just made a great deal of sense. Um, if you're able to kill a big animal, you can't eat that big animal yourself before it rots. So sharing it around um, makes a great deal of sense. You put other people in debt to you. They're grateful to you for what you've done. Hunting is a very, very uncertain business. You're going to go long periods, no matter how good you are, where you don't kill anything. And But other people are going to be killing things and they owe you one. So they kill a big beast. Now you get a piece of the meat and all, all other aspects of hunter-gatherer life as well. It's difficult to accumulate a lot of wealth as a hunter-gatherer because you, you just don't have much stuff. Um, but also if you did, like say you build yourself this magnificent hunter-gatherer house, well, problem because hunter-gatherers on the whole move around constantly. You can't live there more than a few days a year. So you all these 
all these forces militate against inequality, militate in favour of an idea of fairness as being everybody has more or less the same kind of thing. That tends to change really dramatically when you move into farming societies, where all the pressures tend to favour um, private property. You, you, want, you want people to invest a lot of labour into turning uh, wild land into farmland. The more incentives you can do to get people to do that, the, the more economically successful your society is likely to be. The more they're able to keep the produce that's created in their, their fields that they've worked hard on, the harder they're going to work on them. But of course, the more they keep it, the more unequal the outcomes are going to be. And uh, rich people will start marrying other rich people and get more and more polarization of wealth. You've got some people who are really good at persuading everybody else that they are able to talk to the gods. Well, that's a really great superpower to have. You're going to be able to marry into a really wealthy family. Now you've got people with political clout and economic clout. Everything to militates toward inequality growing and growing and growing. There's a great study done a few years back by an economic historian showed that basically um, in nearly every society he was able to document, economic inequality increases to the level as far as it possibly can without it reaching the point that the poorest are systematically starving to death. They will occasionally starve to death, but not systematically, because then, of course, if they're all starving to death, uh, your society is going to go out of business. And so hunter-gatherers are really, really equal, largely because they don't have much scope to be unequal. There's so little wealth. If you have anybody getting a lot richer than anybody else, people are going to start starving. Farming, you get these much, much wider spreads of wealth. But then the really interesting thing is with modern fossil fuel industrialized societies, what, what this economist called the, what's it called? The, the inequality possibility frontier, how far out you can push inequality. Societies start pulling back from that frontier. I mean, we've got so much wealth uh, in the world today that we can have guys like Bill Gates, who somebody famously calculated that if Bill Gates dropped a thousand dollar bill on the floor, it wouldn't be worth his time to bend down and pick it, pick it up. Because the other things he's doing generate more than a thousand dollars in that time. Just it's obscene. I mean, anybody who isn't revolted by that sort of wealth, there's something wrong with you, I, I think. Um, so obscene amounts of wealth. And yet our societies are less unequal relative to how unequal we conceivably could go than just about any earlier society in history. And inequality, of course, has been rising. We're moving back toward that frontier. But the really amazing thing about modern industrialized societies is that we're not right on the frontier. You know, we don't have a hundred big families that own virtually everything, and the rest of us are all grubbling away in miserable poverty like some 18th century Russian peasants. We're not. We might all think we should have more wealth and we deserve more wealth. But you know, in countries like Germany, United States, Canada, most people have got cars. Most people are able to get cell phones. Most people are able, you know, you're terrible eyesight like me, you can get eyeglasses. All this stuff, which is really a lot of wealth compared to anybody else in history. So the big question is, why have the rich in modern industrialized societies not screwed the rest of us down to the floorboards the way the rich have done in every previous existing society? 
And that's the question I got really interested in when I was writing this book, uh, Farmers, Foragers, Farmers and Fossil Fuels. Why didn't that happen? And I think a lot of it just has to do with the nature of these industrialized societies that we've created. Once we learned how to use fossil fuel power, we took the lid off productivity. We could make all of this stuff. And um, political pressures changed uh, toward it's it only any good to a manufacturer being able to make all this stuff really cheaply if somebody can actually buy it. And so mm -hmm. new incentives start to emerge toward there being greater profit to be generated if you have a reasonably affluent, or at least not starving middle class out there who can buy your stuff. And so like when the industrial revolution gets going, what the big sector that drives it initially is cotton, cotton clothing, because that's something that's cheap. And if you can make that really cheaply, the potential market out there, even with you know peasant farmers, potential market is huge. And so, um, it pays you to uh, create you know, higher workers who you're not paying absolute slave wa labor wages to. So they can afford to buy the kinds of things that you're making. And um, when Charles Dickens is writing, he starts writing in the 1840s, when Marx and Engels are doing the Communist Manifesto in 1848, that is right at the point that workers' wages are just beginning to move up in a serious way in the most advanced industrialized countries like England, Northwest Europe. The process is just beginning to happen at that point. So I, I tend to think that it's uh, the um, rise of a much more affluent middle and working class is something that's driven by very, very economic motives. It's not because we all suddenly became angels and the rich decided, oh, wouldn't you know, we've, we've read Charles Dickens, wouldn't it be nice not to oppress Oliver Twist anymore? I, I don't think that that was really what drove this thing along. But the great question, of course, if that's right, the great question is, well, what's going to happen in the future? You know, the economy has changed so much in the last 30 or 40 years. Is it perhaps moving back into an age where we will have these enormous divisions again where the poor will be driven down back down into miserable poverty or have we broken that kind of mold forever are you worried with the development of artificial intelligence for example because you can imagine a world where now there are no more drivers now there are no more service staff and i mean uh, with drone technology drone warfare in the future you won't even be able to die to earn money you know um is is this something you you worry about yeah, I think um, the, the the tech developments of recent years, um, you know, a bit like when we're talking about things like religion. Uh, the, the technology we've got is something you can use to accomplish the things you want. And there's a great variety of possible outcomes out there. And like, so say when we talk about things like the automation of labor, you know, the obvious scary scenario is that it you know, puts millions and millions of low wage workers out of business. They become simply unnecessary. And that, that is the path back toward an extreme inequality spread with super wealth concentrated at the top. Then a lot of people absolutely at starvation level at the bottom. And that that could happen. You know, I, I don't know. Nobody knows uh, whether that's going to happen. But what I always think about, you know, you know, given my profession, I tend to think about these things in terms of historical comparisons. The sort of anxieties we've got at the moment about 
technology driving low-skill workers out of work altogether. You can mirror these pretty much word for word with what British writers are writing in the 19th century about steam-powered technology. They're just saying, oh my God, look at the cotton industry. It used to be you needed um, a spinster who would spend a thousand hours, or whatever, whatever the number was, spinning the, the cotton yarn into the cloth to make you a, a few suits of cotton clothing. Now, her skills are not needed anymore. We've got these steam-powered looms that can do all that spinning in the matter of minutes. <clears throat> We're going to see mass starvation among the working poor of Britain. Well, that doesn't happen. Um, basically, Britain has not, England, sorry, not, not Britain, uh, England has not had a famine since the 16th century. English workers did not starve as their traditional jobs were annihilated in the early 19th century. There were certainly, there were certainly hungry times. There's certainly a lot of social unrest. But what happens is the new fossil fuel technologies have all these unpredicted knock-on effects. People discover you can use fossil fuels to power factories, making kinds of things we hadn't even thought of before, doing things with iron and steel we had never thought of. The cotton industry itself, which is sort of the, the prime mover in all this, yeah, we only now need you know, one laborer to make 100 suits of clothes, or we used to need 200 laborers to do that. But the price of cotton has fallen so far that the markets have expanded a thousandfold. We actually have more people working in cotton now rather than less. And so you know, the, the happy face scenario is that this is what happens with the new tech revolution. That sure, um, accountants and people delivering the mail and you know, all kinds of jobs just get wiped out. And if you went into one of those jobs, that is really, really bad news for you. But all kinds of new jobs that we hadn't even dreamt of are going to be created. And again, I don't know if that's actually what's going to happen. But this is the happy face scenario. And, you know, there's certainly you look around, there are plenty of in indications that that might be the way we're going. Just as there are plenty of indications, you know, abandoned steel towns in the Midwest and whatever, plenty of indications that, that we might be going exactly the opposite way. Um, and I, I think history is a very useful guide to thinking about the future in terms of the way it allows you to construct scenarios and think about possible alternatives, look at how similar processes worked out in the past. History is not much help if you think you're going to get specific answers. And I think this applies as much to economic forecasters as it does to politicians making decisions. You're, by all means, if you say you're an American president trying to decide whether to invade Iraq, you know, by all means, talk to experts on Iraqi history. You would be criminal not to do that. But don't for a second think they can give you the answer. And especially don't think what tends to happen when presidents call in academics to advise them. Don't fire all the academics if they give you the answers you don't like. And then look around for some more academics who do give you the answers you like. That's what tends to happen. Um, these the, the academics looking at history, the, all we can really do is tell you how similar things worked out in the past. What are the things to look out for? What are the potential pluses and minuses? You can only decide what's really happening by looking at the facts on the ground. One of the uh, points in, in the story that you're painting that I don't really follow entirely or I, I would understand a bit better is, um, you know, in terms of using history to understand how inequality develops, morality doesn't fossilize so 
how how do we know for sure how what the moral framework was of hunter gatherer societies? I know I know we have modern analogs today that still live in sort of hunter gatherer lifestyle, but our own ancestors in Western Europe, for example, no longer exist in sort of the same natural framework they were in. So, so what evidence do we have uh, for, for the way that they viewed the world? Yeah, it's <clears throat> it gets it becomes a very tangled topic very very quickly. We basically only have two sources of information. Um, one is what we excavate, and the other is the the analogies based on 19th and 20th century, more or less Stone Age level technology hunt together societies that had survived and were studied by anthropologists and colonial administrators. And um, as you say, the morality doesn't fossilize. So. Um, we get into this complicated kind of guessing game that uh, studying the way that modern hunter-gatherer societies worked, that doesn't tell you how the ancient ones worked. Um, what you need to do is you look at the modern cases and then you say, what are the material correlates of the way these people behaved. So like say um, there's one particular group of hunter-gatherers, the, 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 the Kung San in the Kalahari Desert in Botswana and South Africa, who uh, became beloved of anthropologists. And the poor old Kung San were like overrun with anthropologists, were always out there annoying them and interrupting them about their tasks, saying, what does it mean? Uh, but um, say you, you, you talk to your <laughs> Kung San for a while and you decide you figured out how the Kung San feel about things. The Kung San were very big on sharing, very strong opposed to any kind of hierarchy um and then you say so is that what it was like for stone age ice age hunter gatherers say in in northern europe well the only way we can possibly test that theory is by looking at what the kung san do and we call this ethno-archaeology looking at what they do and looking at what are the material remains it leaves behind so obvious thing, Kung San campsites. Everybody's little shelter is roughly equally the same size. You don't get Kung San mansions. They just don't do that. You look at Northern European Ice Age sites, that's pretty much what you get there as well. There actually are some exceptions. It's the exceptions that are the really interesting things. But generally speaking, very much the same size kind of huts. How do the Kung San organize their use of space? Well, we can, they tend to have a, a base camp where they spend a lot of their time. Then they break down into these logistical camps, we call them, where they go off to do a particular kind of activity, gathering one sort of berry, hunting one kind of animal, butchering it at the site, bringing just back the meat back to the, the base camp. We look at the archaeological record. Does it look like that? A lot of the time, yes, it does. We look at their tools. Do the Kung San generally all make their own tools? When we look at Ice Age tools, do these look like the sort of things that you could make yourself? Or would you have to have specialists already, division of labor? So all these different sorts of things. And um, on the whole, most archaeologists tend to conclude that our the, the hunter-gatherers of the 19th and 20th centuries tell us an awful lot about the prehistoric ones, but not everything is the same, obviously. One of the really big differences is that in the modern world, you know, I talk about the, the Kung San. The Kung San live in the Kalahari Desert. Why do they live in the Kalahari Desert? Certainly not because it's nice there. They live there because farming societies took away every scrap of land on the surface of the planet that farmers could use. And hunter-gatherers got shoved into the bits and nobody wanted. So they're in the deserts, in the jungles, in the North Pole, in the tundras up in Siberia. They're in these horrible parts of the world. They're really difficult to survive in. Whereas prehistoric hunter-gatherers had the entire planet. So um, 
what does that mean for the analogy? So say one thing that we're now coming to see quite clearly, population densities are really low with modern hunter-gatherers because they live in places where you can't get much food. Modern hunter-gatherers tend to be really, really mobile because you've got to move around a lot to keep finding food sources and live in tiny little camps, dozen or so people that periodically get together in bigger groups because you've got to have a bigger group for genetic viability. So you have a festival, you all get together. When we look at the prehistoric hunter-gatherers, that is sort of true, but not completely. We do find some sites that are much bigger, larger groups are living together, um, staying in one place for much longer, and even getting, and this, this doesn't surprise us, so once we know those facts, some indications of social inequality beginning to develop within these communities, even though they're hunter-gatherers, not, um, not farmers, and particularly places, um, watery places, where there's really rich seafood and fish and those sorts of resources, those tend to be where you get the biggest, most sophisticated hunter-gatherer societies. So um, it's like you know, nobody has a rule book with right and wrong answers. We're just able to sort of refine the nature of our problems. So like if you're interested in Ice Age hunter-gatherers, well, you know, the Kung San live in a desert. Is it really likely that they are exactly like Ice Age hunter-gatherers? No, of course it isn't. So Bright Spark archaeologist guy back in the 1970s says, oh, well, obviously what we need to do is go live with some Inuit hunter-gatherers up in Alaska, where it's really cold. It's not exactly like the Ice Age, but it's actually got a lot of similarities. Study the debris they leave behind from hunting animals. Um, see whether they are like uh, the Ice Age hunter-gatherers. And so there's always these little twists. You know, clever academics will think of better ways to get the evidence to sort of cohere together. But the basic rule of life is that whatever it is that you personally really want to know about, we never have direct evidence on that. That does seem to be the basic rule of life. So any theory you come up with, some other academic will always be out there to try to knock it down, which of course is what keeps us um, in employment. Mm. But so the general idea is that the more that every member in society is needed by the rich and powerful, let's say, the more power the individuals have and the more equal the society is. Yes, yeah, so the less internal differentiation you get, the harder it is for people to become rich and powerful in the first place. And so, um, I mean, with these hunter-gatherers again, uh, you know, I mean, our own experience, all of us, we, uh, we tend to know that, you know, both of these big ideas that everybody is the same and everybody's different, both of them contain some of the truth. I mean, you, I think you've got to be very extreme to think only one of those ideas is really true. And it was it's as true in hunter-gatherer societies as it is in modern industrialized ones. And so in hunter-gatherer societies, you get ambitious people who don't want to just be one of the guys. I want to be the guy. And it tends to be young men who fall into these ambitious individual camps, young men who are good at hunting big game. And these are the sort of people who turn into what one anthropologist calls the upstarts. And the upstarts good at hunting big game, they're popular with the ladies, tend to get a lot of girlfriends, they tend to have more children than the other guys. Um, and they tend to start in their own heads translating this success into other walks of life and say, I'm the great hunter, I'm the great lover, I'm really the great everything. Everybody should do what I say. And they start bossing people around. And it's, it's just fascinating. So the other hunter-gatherers, what are you going to do about this? You don't like this. Um, this is kind of socially disruptive. It breaks up the ways we've been doing things. So they've got all these techniques they use to bring these 
would-be big men down to size because you know you can't if the big man beats you up or something you can't go to the police because there are no police there are no real um formal institutions in the modern sense at all so what do you do about these would-be big men gossip gossip is this really powerful tool as it is of course in informal social networks in our own world you pull the big man down to size by making fun of him one of the kung san things they do is like say you are this great hunter and you're starting to really just tick off the rest of us we will start pretending we can't hear anything you say so you talk and we'll say what what and this will drive you nuts uh, but you will figure out pretty quickly you'll get the message unless you really are an idiot you'll get the message and you need to start acting a bit nicer around the rest of us if you don't get the message there's other stuff we can do um there's stuff like you you will wake up one morning you'll get out of your little shelter made of reeds and rushes you look around everybody's gone in the night we all got up and left and we didn't tell you where we've gone and you will eventually find us but uh, you get the message um if you don't get the message if you consistently refuse to get the message we kill you that's another option too and this is one of the reasons why hunter-gatherer societies are, are violent um if you you know the hunter-gatherers don't get into quarrels any more than you or i do but the constraints making violence a high cost solution to your arguments it's much lower and so if enough of us get together we might say oh you know shane is a really big man in our hunter gatherer band he's a real tough guy we're all scared of shane however there's 11 of us and there's only one of him and he won't expect this we will just come up behind him and we'll give him a good old-fashioned um depression fracture on the left side of his skull and maybe a couple of parry wounds as well and old shane is dead as a doornail and the problem has been solved and that solution is used not not frequently it's not like these societies are you know madhouses of violence it's just that it's used a lot more than it would be in our world i mean you know a lot of detective stories get written about written about bumping off um the horrible ceo or, or something like that um but in reality you don't murder them all that often we've got these other mechanisms for getting rid of these people in the hunter-gatherer societies if your other mechanisms fail murder is always there so it's like all, all the struggles you and I are familiar with, these are going on in contemporary and prehistoric hunter-gatherer societies and contemporary and ancient farming societies. But the methods available to resolve them, the costs and benefits of different methods, they're just different from us. And so, mm -hmm. of course, you get different outcomes. I'm sort of interested in how... so. Uh, from a moral point of view, violence might be viewed differently in these communities. And I'm sort of interested in what happens when different moral structures interact with one another. So, for example, you know, as a historian or someone who uses uh, historical techniques to analyze societies, how should how should we view the big men in society who have done things that by our standards we view as being abhorrent. So, for example, looking back at uh, important figures who had slaves or were sexist or any number of things that we don't condone today. What, what, what's, what's the best way of, or, or a useful way of thinking of these people? Yeah, we're living through a period of astonishingly rapid moral and ethical transformation. I mean, I... 
pretty confident in saying there's never been anything like this in the entire history of the world. Like what's happened over the last 50 years, um, particularly in wealthy Western industrialized societies, but only across the, the whole world as well. And I think this is driven by um, the, the you know, shockingly rapid economic transformations that we've been going through. And I mean, I, you know, I'm now in my early 60s, I regret to say, but it, that means I, I've seen a lot of this happen. And so I, I grew up in a very working class part of Britain uh, where compared to nowadays, there was a lot of violence. There were very few weapons out there, but there's a lot of violence, a lot of punch-ups. Um, you, know, you, you could, it was always a serious risk. If you went out to the pub on a Friday or Saturday night, it always had a serious risk of getting a punch on the nose. Um, there was a lot of sexism, a lot of racism, rampant homophobia, all the the sorts of things that particularly within your know, university communities like you you and I work in have now become you know, the absolute moral outrages. These things were just way way more normal. The world has changed dramatically, and most of us, again, I think particularly in the academic communities, most of us have moved along with this for just the same reasons everybody in, did in the past when moral systems changed, albeit more gradually. That if you don't move with the way everyone around you is interpreting the moral order, you will be punished for this. And um, I, I, I have this one experience, I love telling people about this one, right? the, the speed with which the world has changed. Um, this is about 15 years ago when we were digging in Sicily and I have all these students out there with me digging in Sicily and we're based in this town in western Sicily that um it's a really nice town but it has this very dark underside to it it's um it used to be it's not clear if it still is but it used to be a major mafia center we're five miles from Corleone where the godfather the real life godfather mm -hmm. came from five miles from there so it's got it, this long deep history in the drug trade and violence and so on periodically this would break out to the surface and one day there'd been an act of rather unpleasant violence very public in the middle of the town and so at the end of the day uh we're all having dinner back at the dig house we're talking about this and i'm sitting with a group of the students and one of these students big strapping lad in his early 20s a really big strong guy and we're talking about this episode of violence that had taken place in the town that day and the student says to me yeah i mean god that horrible and then he says i wonder what it would feel like to punch somebody and i burst out laughing because uh and uh, not not meaning to be nasty or anything, but in the 1970s when I was a schoolboy, it was I, I just I don't think any boy in my school there was any boy who had not punched somebody. It was just inconceivable that you could get through high school without punching anybody. It just couldn't happen. But I, I look around the table and I realize, oh my god, all the students are staring at me now. It's not it's not this guy that they think is weird because he's never punched anybody. Can't imagine doing it. It's me because. I'm the sort of guy who clearly has punched people. And uh, I, I, that was a real wake-up call for me, just how much things have changed. And um, it's just something cultural historians are very interested in, the way we have defined down what constitutes violence. Because, again, when I was a schoolboy, the line between violent and non-violent aggression was pretty clear. I mean, has somebody made physical contact with you? Um, have they, if, if they've made physical contact with you, actually, that might not really count as violence. If they didn't hurt you much, yeah, we'll just say boys will be boys and forget about it. Um, now there are all kinds of acts that you might take that other people will perceive as aggressive. It doesn't, doesn't involve any actual physical 
um, contact, but will be categorized as violent also. And this is you know, one of the reasons why I say the long-term history of violence is this very happy story. The, the fact that we can live in a world where talking about physical violence can be counted as an act of violence. That means our world has become a better, to my lights anyway, a better and less violent place. This is a really good thing. But it is difficult for um, the, the, the older members of any society to live through this sort of process. I feel I have so much more understanding of my poor old granddad now. The things he had to put up with, the indignities he had to put up with living into the 1960s and 70s. I couldn't understand at the time, why is he so upset that I'm growing my hair long? I get it now, Granddad. All is forgiven. I guess nowadays, uh, silence is violence, and there's microaggressions and all of this. Uh, so I, I have to ask, though, when you were in your physical, who, who were you beating up when you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I myself was an angel and would never uh, even dream of beating anybody up. But um, other boys at school would settle dispute, would turn readily to violence to settle their arguments. And it certainly wasn't seen as in any way peculiar if you got into an argument, you know, playing sports or something, if one of you punched the other one. It was, uh, you know, if you did it on the field, you'd be sent off by the referee because it's not allowed on the field. If you did it back in the changing rooms, yeah, you know, this stuff happens. Whereas now I think that would be... Um, much more of a problem if you did that. Um, my um, sister and her brother were both high school teachers in England. They said you know, they, they virtually never anymore by the time they retired, never had to deal with disciplining kids for acts of violence against each other. So it's sort of, um, and well, uh, I'm, I'm sure you know that Stephen Pinker wrote this, uh, the psychologist Stephen Pinker wrote this very influential book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. And he talks about this quite a bit in that book. And he says, I think he's right, that it's an across the board phenomenon. So it's um, major wars have declined dramatically uh, since 1945. Um, the use of violence by uh, by governments against their own citizens has declined dramatically. It doesn't always seem that way, but it declined dramatically from what it used to be like. And uh, you know, a lot of the uh, outrage against police violence in the United States and other countries at the moment, when you look at the levels of violence that police are using now, it's so much lower than what the law enforcement agencies were using in the 19th century. It's just that in some countries, like the United States in particular, it's way, way higher than it should be. Right? You look at Western European police forces, very few people die in the custody of the police in the Netherlands or Denmark or England. I suspect it's true in Germany as well. Very, very few people die in police custody. In the United States, Compared to the 19th century, very few people die in police custody, but a lot more die in police custody than they do in other advanced, rich democracies in the Western world. So it's like the, you know, the, we, we've recalibrated all of the problems. And what would have seemed you know, perfectly normal behavior 50, 60 years ago now seems outrageous and unacceptable. And again, I think for you know, older people who live through these transformations, it makes this is why I think all of us old people tend to find the world such a bewildering place. But this is good. The world is moving in a good direction when these things happen. In terms of calibration, I guess an obvious question to ask is, if you go back 100, 200, 300 years, would women have thought that they were oppressed? If, you, if, I, if I asked a woman from 250 years ago, you know, is your life fair? 
um, what would their response have been? Yeah, it's difficult to know the answer to these sorts of questions, especially if you go back even further, say a thousand years, because so much of the written evidence that we've got comes from the rich and from men. I mean, overwhelmingly what we've got is from the rich and from men, which makes it very difficult to hear the voices of people who in, uh, if their society were transplanted to the modern, modern times, we would say, oh, these are the oppressed. These are the downtrodden, the women, the poor men. We just don't have their voices directly at all. And again, it's a bit like talking about hunter-gatherers, actually. We've got the work that anthropologists did visiting primarily agricultural communities in the 19th and 20th centuries. And then we can try to make inferences from what was written down in ancient times. And um, I guess, I mean, I would say that probably most women would say they were not particularly oppressed uh, in that, uh, I mean, the, the sort of ideas we tend to have in richer countries nowadays about gender equality, these sorts of ideas just were not current. And there's sort of no way to make them current either uh, in, in ancient times. And um, there, there's occasionally you'll get bodies of literature talking about the equality of women. It often turns out there's some weird stuff about it. There's this body of 16th century literature from Europe about the equality of women. Turns out most of it was written by men pretending to be women. And it's like this court game that you get into playing these intellectual games with this. And so it's very, very difficult for us to directly access the voices, um, uh, the thoughts of women. We do occasionally get these glimpses, at least into upper class women. <clears throat> and there's this one uh, very well known among ancient historians, Roman woman named Turia, who um, dies uh, while still fairly young. And her husband, who uh, appears to have loved her very, very much, gives this long impassioned oration over her at her funeral and then pays to have it inscribed on a big block of stone and the stone the stone is found so we know most of what he claims to have said he might not have actually said this but it's what he wants people to think he said at her funeral and what he says about Turia is not that she uh, is like a doormat she, she's not great because she did everything that he said clearly she didn't yet she's also she's not great because she acts like a 21st century feminist clearly she didn't but she uh, was a strong woman doing what most upper class people at the time seemed to have considered appropriate for a woman. She championed her family. She went to enormous lengths on behalf of her children and her husband. Um, when the authorities tried to confiscate their estates, uh, when one of them was involved in uh, a political conflict, was on the wrong side, the authorities tried to conf 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 what's the word? confiscate their estates. She went to the magistrates and the politicians and argued the case in person, not for herself, but for her male kin. And now, if she did that in the 2020s, that would be you know, seen as a very, very old-fashioned behaviour. But in the, the 10s and 20s AD, when she lived, this was what most people seem to have thought was the appropriate sphere of action for a woman. And actually, if you read, several Shakespeare's plays have very strong women in them. And the ones who are admirable tend to be the ones who are... are 
aggressive and forceful on behalf of the men in their families. And my suspicion would be that in most agricultural societies throughout history, this was the goal of the, the admirable woman was one who reared healthy children, ran a good household and stood up for the household as a whole. And it was kind of a deal. There was a, a deal was made. The husband, the husband is, is in, he is in charge, no doubt about that. If the woman publicly contradicts her husband, she's a bad wife, a bad mother. But the husband has obligations too. If he beats his wife, he is normally considered to be a bad man unless she's done one of the things that is considered to justify it. Nowadays, we tend to say, Nothing justifies the husband beating the wife. You go back a few hundred years, uh, there are some things that now justify it. Go back a few thousand years, uh, now there's quite a lot of things that justify it. But there's, there are always rules about what you can and cannot do. If the husband you know, takes all the wife's goods and keeps her in miserable conditions, he is a bad man and he will pay a price for this. It's like a deal is worked out. I would say this was always the case in gender relations. A deal is worked out between the sexes. Um, but what that deal is, that varies as much as any other ideas about fairness uh, over time. And you know, our ideas about fairness, uh, gender equality, would have seemed insane through most of history, which doesn't mean that they're, they're bad or stupid or anything. Um, I think the ideas we currently have, they are the ones that work in the kind of world that we have got, the kind of world that we're creating. They wouldn't have worked in the past, which is why it, it's in a way it's kind of stupid to condemn people from the past for just behaving like people from the past because that's what they are and so in a way you could say getting all upset about statues of confederate generals in towns in the south and the united states it's kind of silly to condemn a confederate general for being a confederate general but on the other hand, that's not the only thing that's going on here. By having statues of Confederate generals in towns in South Carolina in the 2020s, we are saying we continue to think of these men as admirable people. Given how much our society has changed since then, do we still want to say that the Confederate generals are admirable people? So on the one hand, I think it's just, it's just silly to pour scorn and abuse on a Confederate general. But on the other hand, um, if you decide to maintain a statue of a Confederate general in your time, in your own town, you are saying that the good things, whatever they are, about that Confederate general outweigh the general's support for slavery, the general taking up arms against the lawfully elected government of the United States. You're saying, ah, that slavery stuff, that insurrection stuff, yeah, that's not so important. He was a good man at heart. And so it seems to me that the people pulling down the statues have got a very valid point as well. What do you, what do you think the appropriate approach is? Should you leave them up, but maybe put a plaque there or, or move them to a museum? Or what would your preferred approach be? Yeah, I, I take the great cop out of it depends. Um, it depends on who we're talking about here. Um, and so, like, uh, if you want to put up a, st a statue of Mussolini in Italy, which some people do, um, it seems to me that's just you, you should not be doing. That should not be allowed. That statue should be taken away. But of course, I have this sort of weird archaeologist thing about feeling very uncomfortable about ever approving of the destruction of historical relics. So I think carting some of them, carting them off to a museum is a good idea. Some of them, as you suggest, leaving them in place, but having a sort of counter narrative put up there is a good idea. Sometimes I think you should just leave them be. And um, Winston Churchill is a good one here. He became very controversial. Uh, 
figure, of course, in all sorts of ways. But in 2020, uh, Black Lives Matter demonstrators daubed this slogan, Churchill was a racist on this big statue of Churchill in the middle of London. And um, seems to me, again, he's one of these guys. He's a guy from late 19th, early 20th century. Um, his views on race were the views of the 1930s. And he lived in the 1930s. So condemning him for having 1930s views about India is kind of silly. Although actually in his case, even for the 1930s, Churchill was extreme. He was recognized as a racist in the 1930s. His, his own conservative prime minister called him insane for his views over India. They were so reactionary and racist. So he was a racist even in his own time. And yet, um, if it hadn't been for Winston Churchill, there's a very good chance Britain would have surrendered and all cut a deal with Hitler in the summer of 1940. And it seems to me in the larger balance of things, Standing up to Adolf Hitler, keeping Britain in the war long enough for the Soviet Union and the US to come in and defeat Hitler, that was really good. And to my mind, that outweighs his racist views, which in the end had close to zero impact on British policy. When Churchill himself was prime minister again in the early 1950s. He withdrew from British colonies just as fast as the Labour Party prime ministers had been doing. He was actually, he was a racist, but he was also a pragmatist and he was a defender of freedom and his stand against Hitler, to my mind, excuses quite a lot of things. So I think it, it, it all depends uh, on these cases. Um, jumping back a little bit uh, to women again, I you might be the perfect person to ask this question. So um, back when, so you were talking about what the uh, the morally upright woman may have done back in, I don't know the era you were talking about. When was it specifically? I was talking about the time of the Roman Empire, the specific example of Turia, about 2000 years ago. So in those days, what would have happened if a if the wife of a man had broken the law? Was she responsible or was he responsible? What what was the story? Or did it depend? Or because you were talking about different responsibilities that he might have had in in return for what was what was the situation? Yeah, um, uh, you, as you can probably guess, it depends is always a good answer in these situations. It does vary very very much. The legal codes vary enormously, but but generally speaking. Um, the man is at least partly, the male head of household is at least partly responsible. And there's a lot of legal systems, like the ancient Athenian legal system, it's conceived more in terms of the oikos, the household, than it is of the individual. And so um, if a woman were to commit murder, she is responsible for her act, but so is her husband or her father if she's still living at home. And um, these sort of attitudes, uh, you know, they, they persist into quite modern times. Uh, and one of the big legal arguments in the United States when cars first come in and women start driving cars was what happens if a woman runs somebody over? Who is legally responsible? Can the woman be held legally responsible or um, should the husband be held legally responsible? And in some countries, but in, in Britain in this case, uh, this got to be a big problem because when a woman married, her husband assumed control over all of her financial assets. So they really needed to have all responsibility shifted away from the woman and onto the man. Because otherwise, like, you know, if my wife ran somebody over, I could just say, well, she's got no assets. Sue her from here to kingdom come. I don't care. So you've got to be able to hold the male responsible. Until because you then change the laws giving the man control over the financial assets and then of course you change the laws about women's legal responsibility as well but yet generally speaking 
the men tend to control the economic assets of the house and uh, the house is conceived as being represented by the person of the man so yeah the man is the one who uh, it varies, but the man is the one they're likely to come after in connection of the behaviour of any of the people considered to be his subordinates within the household. Is is this what is this the argument that was used to allow men to be physically violent? I mean, if he was the only one that could be, uh, you know, because you have you were talking earlier about um, having. A strong state would curb violence, you know, having a police force. And I guess having a, the world police would curb America in this case would curb violence. And I suppose here the, 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 the wife is not subject directly to the violence of the state. And so I guess it's the, the male is the conduit in some weird way. Is this the way things function? So, I, I actually don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And the, when you look at the, the long run history of states and governments, um, one of the big aspects of the story is the, the way the state gradually takes over from other actors the right to use legitimate violence. And so the earliest states, um, going back about 5,000 years in the Middle East, basically it's, it's a mafia. Um, it consists of a strong man who's got a group of experts in violence around him. And um, he is able to intimidate other potential strong men, the aristocracy, who have their own retinues of violent men around them. He, he remains king so long as he can intimidate them. But nobody in their wildest dreams thinks that the king has enough violence at his disposal that he can actually go in and force people all the way down the social spectrum to do what he wants. So the only way the king, the government, can get people to do what they want and lower rates of violence is if they persuade other people to use their own private violence or threat of it on behalf of the government. And so, like, say you're a big landowner somewhere and it's trouble on your estates and it's it's. Uh, uh, causing a problem for me, the king. I don't come onto your estates and my police force. There's no such thing as a police force. I come to you. We sit down together and say, look, Shane, come on, do something about these people. And again, it's like a scene out of The Sopranos. We talked, do something about these guys. They're out of control. That's bad for business. And so you, 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 uh, smart landowner, you know what the deal is. You go onto your estates, you crack a few heads. And again, you don't go down to the bottom either. You know, you'll crack a few heads. They will go back home to their families, crack a few heads. And over time, states have progressively taken on responsibility for more and more of the head cracking. And the state grows powerful insofar as it takes away the right to use violence from people like you, the great landowners. This is the great struggle always between the king and the aristocracy. And then the, what, you know, what modern states do, coming down saying, you know, wife beating, that is something that the state takes an interest in. Beating your children, the state takes an interest in this. Every kind of violence is of concern to the state. And we have police. There are so many police. They can come into your homes and oversee what you're doing. This is an amazingly modern phenomenon. It's only really the last hundred years that governments, and it even occurred to governments, you might want to do this. Because it, it really, it, I'm like you as the, the male house owner, the, the, the household, the head of household, this is something that goes back thousands and thousands of years. It's a huge deal for the state to impinge on your right to control your, old, control your own households. So there was enormous pushback. Very, very controversial thing happens in the late 19th and the 20th centuries as governments start intervening within people's households so then why did the women's movement you know the modern 
uh, women's movement with the su- suffragettes and you know the right to vote and everything. Why did that happen when it happened? Was it was it just that that was a moment in time when women had more power to act, or was it a moment in time when inequality was particularly bad, or was it a moment in time in which our moral shift and so we viewed uh, this inequality that we didn't view before? Or what was what was the driving factor then? Yeah, I. I- suspect although we, we can't actually prove this directly from evidence but i suspect that you know, throughout history there has always been women pushing back against the restrictions put on them by their husbands fathers brothers the state all these different sorts of people but of course the, the kind of restrictions they were pushing back on are very different from the kind of restrictions that feminists push back on today it might be something as minimal say like in athens they had this very low threshold on the amount of financial resources a woman was allowed to control in her own right so women we, we can see this actually we can see this happening in some of the lawsuits women find these really clever ways to do end runs around the laws yeah yeah okay i'm only allowed to own 200 drachmas worth of assets but i can set up these sort of shell companies basically that give me control over all this other stuff and then in the course of a lawsuit about something else completely all these details start to come out it's <laughs> really interesting so i think your know, people women have always been there pushing and there have always been some men who are sympathetic and some men who are very hostile to this um it the nature of that struggle though changes dramatically i think about 100 150 years ago when um modern industrialized societies are getting to the point that admitting large numbers of women to the labor force is a really good idea as like if you admit women to the labor force on equal terms as men, you double the size of the labor market. What is not to like about that? Unless you're an unskilled laborer when there's a lot not to like because your wages will fall. But for people running things, this is great. Of course you would want to do this. But we do have all these traditions and customs that make us very uncomfortable about doing this. So it's always going to be this moral uh, anxiety-driven kind of struggle. But I I think once industrial societies get to this point, once service work gets... uh, as opposed to swinging a pick and shovel, become really important in the economy. If you don't admit women on equal footing, your economy is going to suffer terribly. Your nation is going to fall behind. That's why they suddenly all discover their, their that these elite men discover their moral uh, certainties about the need to admit women to the labor force. And of course, things change on the supply side as well. As women are having fewer and fewer babies, as more survive to grow up, you don't need to have six or seven babies anymore. Two is normally perfectly adequate washing machines are invented um electric irons get invented economists call these engines of liberation the washing machine the dryer the vacuum cleaner that free up all this time within the household that overwhelmingly women have done that work before so women have the ability to move out of the household they have time that can now be put into the labor market um elite controls on that labor market are lifting so there's more scope for women so it's just suddenly everything begins to change very very quickly and i think we see the same kind of thing say with restrictions on the place of jews in european societies all kinds of religious restrictions um gender age all kinds of things once you take the lid off all of the limits begin to crumble and collapse. And so once women are working in the labor force, they're beginning to get money in their own pockets. They are more independent within the household or can even set up their own households and live on their own. Um, 
they are becoming a significant force in the labor place. If all um, of all the typists walk out at IBM, IBM has got a real problem here. Um, women are just getting to be more and more powerful, um, starting just like your poor men had been doing back in the 19th century to demand more and more for themselves. As they do so, people in power are increasingly coming to see, well, a, it's just morally wrong what we used to do. It's just it's just not right. I don't want to be that person. And B, it's kind of good for the bottom line to agree with them and work out a new deal where these annoying women, these annoying poor workers, these annoying Jewish people, they actually get some of what they want now because it's kind of good for us in the elite as well. So, um, yeah, so activism will then increase. And so, you know, again, I think a lot of the sorts of things we argue over now in um questions about gender equity would have just seemed unimaginable 50 years ago, let alone 100 or 1,000 years ago. But of course, they are things that make complete sense in the context that we're in. I like this. Is, this is an example of the opposite of what we were speaking about before. So in this case, it's sort of like the technology driving morality. And uh, can I ask then, is um, if we look back to when... Uh, Slavery, slavery was in some sense normalized. Back then, was it moralized? Uh, was it always moral? I know that uh, in modern times it was moralized based on race or, or even religion. But was it always moral, moralized or were there periods in history where it was viewed as just a necessary evil or was that never the case? Yeah, I mean, so, so far as I can make out, there is always a theory behind slavery. And of course, there's lots of slave-owning societies we know very little about. But the ones where we do have information, they've always got some theory for why this is, in fact, right. It's very unusual to be a sort of hard-nosed economist and just say, well, look at our, our marginal labor costs. We, we have to reduce somebody to slavery, otherwise we can't make widgets anymore. So let's just go off and do it. Um, they almost never say that. There's always a reason. So, you, I mean, you mentioned race, and of course race, the one we're most familiar with today because of the, the New World slavery experience, where um, when, when Europeans first come out to the New World and start setting up um, plantations and so on, initially they're not using African slaves. Um, initially, the Spaniards will often try to uh, get the Native American populations to work for them, which they have a very mixed record in doing that. When the, the French and British um, come out and start setting up their colonies, what they tend to do is bring out indentured laborers from their own country. So the British bring out Irish in particular. You bring out criminals and you bring out Irish people who are um, maybe not starving, but not far off it back at home. And you make a deal. Basically, you say, you come, you work for me for seven years in Virginia, then you are released from the terms of this contract and you can set up a farm on your own, knowing that the bulk of your laborers will be dead long before seven years has come around. So it is effectively lifetime slavery for them. But the African slaves only come in slightly later when the European colonists in the New World discover that um, the systems of indentured labor and Native American labor just aren't working very well. So they look around saying, what can we do? One solution would be renegotiate the contract with your indentured laborers, give them better terms. They, they do that. The indentured laborers tend to become freer much more, much more quickly. But they also say, are there other sources of labor? And they say, oh, yes. West Africa. We can pick up people in West Africa, bring them to America to grow cotton and other goods on American soil, and then ship the profits back to Europe where we live. What a great system. And that's the point at which they really start 
theorizing race as a form of inferiority. People have always been conscious of race. You know, Europeans would look at Africans and say, oh, you're a different color from me. And um, generally, people who are different generally tend to be perceived as not as good as what you are yourself. But the, the really systematic racial theory develops in the 16th century onward in Europe and legitimates slavery. Other slave societies had different theories. So in Islamic slave societies, religion tended to be the big thing. And so Muslim slave owners generally went to enormous trouble to prevent their slaves from converting to Islam, because then they no longer have a legal uh, rationalization for keeping them in slavery. Um, in the Roman Empire, the principle was, was conquest and war. That we go off, we fight a war against other people, we have the right to massacre them all if we win this war. So if we don't kill you, we have given you the gift of your life at the price of you becoming a slave. And the interesting with Roman slavery, um, we tend to talk about slavery very so much how it works. Roman slavery was generally, not, not always, but generally what we call an open slavery system where the boundary between free and slave was very permeable. Romans manumitted, freed a lot of their slaves. And those slaves then move into the free class. They continue to work under various disabilities, but their, their children will normally be completely free, full citizens of the Roman Empire. Whereas because American, modern American slavery was the absolute opposite. If you were a black slave in the Americas, it was almost impossible in some states, well, some states it was illegal ever to become a free citizen within that state. So there's a lot of different kinds of slavery. Um, but as far as I can make out, every slave-owning society has had a rationale for why slavery is not only expedient, but also right. And in the extreme cases, <clears throat> It's good for the slaves. The slaves are only morally complete when they have an owner because they are lesser human beings, so they need an owner. And it is, it is sort of fascinating. I mean, Aristotle, one of the cleverest men who ever lived, Aristotle ties himself in complete logical knots trying to justify Greek slavery, which he had such a problem with it because the Greeks didn't have a very good ideology of slavery. And so he's reduced in the end to just saying, well, some people are just natural slaves. The gods made them with a component of their psyche missing. Basically, all foreigners fall in this category. They're natural slaves. And so Greeks are doing them a favor by bringing them to Greece to be slaves and work for Greeks so they will get at least some amount of moral improvement from this. And again, it's like some of what we were discussing earlier. It's so important to everybody to feel that I myself am fair. What I do is fair and right. And if I enslave you, well, it's because your race has made you enslavable or because your religion or, or whatever the, the rationale is, there is a reason why you're my slave. And of course, now this idea now, now that nothing ever justifies treating anybody as so inferior that they can be enslaved, this would have been very difficult for very many people at all to get their heads around until, say, 200 years ago. It sounds like Plato might have almost been there, but just couldn't quite kick it. I want to... Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to... Um, Give you a, a chat. You know, we've been we've, so far. We've talked about the influence of war uh, and disaster on the development of society. We've talked about religion and morality on the impact of society. Before wrapping up, I wanted to give you a, a chance uh, at your thesis. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, if you had to pick a key factor 
why it is that currently the West uh, is dominant, even if it might be on the way out. Uh, what would that factor be? Would it be that we've stolen wealth from colonies and, and so that places us in a different position with relation to them? Or is it geography? Is it that we're more violent than other uh, groups? Is, or is it just dumb luck? Is, is, uh, what, if, if you could pick, uh, you know, take hold of one of these reasons or some other reason, uh, what, what would your uh, thesis be? Yeah, well, historians are well known for, you ask them a simple question, they give you an incredibly long and complicated answer. And at the end, you have no idea what they really said. This is kind of our, our, our way of working. Um, but with this one, I think it's a really simple answer. It's it's all about geography. It's that simple. Um, the Westerners, you could say it's luck in the sense the Westerners are the ones who happen to live in the part of the world where geography <clears throat> led them to become globally dominant. But um the, the thing is, though, I mean, this is what I, I wrote a book called Why the West Rules for Now, which is a bit directly about this question. And saying it's geography that drives everything very simple and straightforward. But of course, if you know anything about history, you know history is really messy and complicated. So if your geography is so simple and geography explains everything, why is the outcome so messy and complicated? And I say that's because geography itself is a bit messy and complicated. And so, like, you know, the, the, the world's geography, the world's physical geography has not changed all that much until global warming really started taking off. Hadn't changed all that much in the last, say, 8,000 years, since the first few thousand years after the end of the Ice Age. The coastlines have been more or less where they are now, rivers, mountains, all that kind of stuff. What has changed dramatically, though, is what that geography means. And it means very different things, depending on the level of development human societies have reached. So um, right after the end of the Ice Age, the most advantageous geography on the planet was in what we now call the Middle East, which is a bit wetter then than it is now. It had particular kinds of wild plants and animals that could be domesticated relatively easily. The Middle East is the place in the world where the first farming societies developed, the first states. It comes to dominate uh, the areas around it. Middle East becomes very, very powerful because of geography. And so like people in Siberia did not create the first states and build pyramids because they lived in Siberia. It could not be done in Siberia. There were almost no domesticable plants and animals there. But as societies got more and more developed, it's again one of these storylines about developments kind of undermining themselves. So as these Middle Eastern societies get more and more powerful, more and more sophisticated, they expand geographically, bring their institutions to new places with new kinds of geography, where people discover ways to take advantage of that kind of geography. So like the, the greatest empire in the ancient world is the Roman Empire. But Italy, back around 3000 BC, Italy is an absolute nothing kind of place. There's nothing going on in Italy. There are actually rather few people living in Italy 3000 years ago. Italy only suddenly becomes a great place to live when societies have developed to the point that um, you can actually dominate an entire sea. And of course, the Middle East notably does not have very many big bodies of water in it. Whereas the Mediterranean is a body of water big enough that you've got enormous <clears throat> economic and ecological variation around it, but small enough that Roman era navies can dominate that sea. Roman era armies can march all the way around it. The Romans can unite the whole Mediterranean Sea, setting off an economic boom unlike anything the ancient world had seen before. And the center of gravity shifts from the Middle East <clears throat> into the Mediterranean. 
Now, Western Europe, North America are even more extreme backwaters through almost the whole of human history. They take off in a big way when societies, this is about 500, yeah, roughly 500 years ago, societies are developing to the point that they can now master an entire ocean. The North Atlantic Ocean is, again, big enough that you've got extreme differences around it. So the, um, you know, North America, Western Europe, West Africa, um, the Caribbean, these places are very different, can grow entirely different crops. Some have got gold, different kinds of societies. You can enslave Africans, take them to the Americas on land you've stolen there, the profits back to Europe and build factories. Um, they're very, very different, but by the 17th, 18th century, Europeans have got ships that can dominate the North Atlantic Ocean. And that's why the West comes to dominate the world. There have been earlier regional dominant powers like the Romans in the Mediterranean, Chinese out in East Asia before this, but only in the 19th century do we really get to the point where societies have developed so much that they can now project power globally. And the British within Europe are the ones that have at the head of the pack at that point. British build up the great British empire. Other Europeans build up great empires as well. The British one bigger than any of them, all driven by geography. And it seems to me we're now living in an age where geography is again shifting its meanings. And in the last 50, 60, 70 years, We've reached the point where even the Pacific Ocean can now be mastered and turned into a, basically a highway rather than a barrier. Container ships, jet planes, the internet, satellites, all these things turn the Pacific Ocean into a highway. Whereas you know, even up to the Second World War, it was kind of a barrier. Um, when the US goes to war with Japan, um, one of the best things for the Americans about having the British as allies is the British have built a chain of island bases, naval bases across the Pacific Ocean. The US Navy couldn't have operated in the western end of the Pacific against Japan at the beginning of the war if it hadn't been able to use British bases to get out there more easily. The Pacific is still big enough to be a barrier at that point. Now it's not. Um, and so what happens as a result of that is, of course, the nations clustered around the Pacific start pulling away from the rest. This, I would say, this is the fundamental cause why we've seen the East catching up so much since the 1940s, 1950s. Uh, their economy is going so much faster and the balance of global wealth and power has shifted toward East Asia. And it's going to carry on doing that. Um, and the conclusion I, I came to in that book, Why the West Rules, is that by the end of the 21st century, we will be living in um, an Eastern dominated world, unless something else happens and we blow ourselves up. Is there going to be room for uh, for Australia, South America and Africa to have their time in the sun? or? In principle, there's absolutely no reason why not. Although, again, it's like th this story is one of geography playing itself out. Um, similar forces driving somewhat similar outcomes across tens of thousands of years of history, but not identical. And so the story has changed as it's gone forward. So like you know, before about 1800, the idea of a truly global hegemon, the global power, that idea was sort of unimaginable, in uh, even as late as the 18th century. It's only really with the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, that becomes thinkable. Um, an obvious question strategists worry about a lot now is, are we now moving into a period when we move beyond British Empire, American Empire type organizations to ones that really can dominate the planet absolutely in an unshakable kind of way? In which case, um, the chances for you know, an 
African-dominated world, that perhaps just gets cut off in its tracks. And that sort of thing has happened over and over again. Like um, you compare old world and new world civilizations in the long run. They're, they're very different, but the, the new world, the Aztecs, the Incas, they are moving in similar directions to what the great agricultural empires, the old world have been moving in a few thousand years earlier. And if someone had built a big wall all around the America, so no Europeans or Asians can get there, I think it's very reasonable to think Aztec and Inca and well, successor empires would have turned into things very like the empires of 18th century Europe or China, maybe had their own industrial revolutions too, because nobody does build that wall. And instead, <clears throat> Europeans, Asians show up in North America, South America, just cut off the indigenous development in its tracks. Um, because they're able to do so, their development is so much further ahead than the indigenous American development. You know, are we now in another episode like that, where some part of the world, maybe East Asia, maybe South Asia, who knows, is pulling so far ahead in relative terms, but also developing so much in absolute terms, that what it's able to do just ends the story for absolutely everybody else in terms of you know, power politics. Or are we now moving into a world where things have changed so much that that old story about power politics and, and dominant powers, that has ceased to mean anything? Are we entering a world where great power rivalries are just going to dissipate because we are going to be so interlinked, the world's so interwoven, that talking about um, you know, American or Chinese domination in the world just isn't really going to mean anything very much anymore? And again, nobody knows the answer. So in this second picture, is this like a sort of an end of nations where we just have one global government? Is, is that sort of the picture you're painting? Or? Well, it might, the end of nations might just be the beginning of what ends here. And um, you, know, you don't have to live in Silicon Valley to have noticed that the world has become vastly more computerized in the last few years. Our lives have become so interpenetrated now by, by digital technologies that in a lot of ways, um, like, well, I talked about geography a lot. Geography does not mean what it used to mean. And new technologies have had a vast part to do with that. Like, say, um, you know, we're doing this over a computer. Um, before the recent uh, unpleasantness, I could have jumped on a plane and flown out to Germany and been with you in like 12, 13 hours easily. If I tried to move from California to Germany in the 17th century, that is months or years involved to do that. The, the meaning of geography changed so much between the 17th century and the 20th. Um, more and more, our lives are moving onto these digital platforms. And obviously, they have not done so completely. Everyone knows the difference between Zooming and actually going somewhere. But uh, Zooming would have seemed like magic 100 years ago. And it still sort of does in some ways. And that's just you know, a little example. The cell phone, the computing power, and its ability to collapse space and time, it's breathtaking. Um, what we are now able to do with intervening in the human brain Again, it's magic. Intervening in all parts of the human body, the genetic um, technology, the genetic means available to us to change what it is to be a human being. Uh, it's just staggering. We are on the cusp of an absolute revolution in what it means to be a human being, uh, which is why I tend to think we might find that great power politics become extinct relatively quickly within the next, not, not, not in my lifetime, but within the next few lifetimes. And already, um, your body, all of our, almost all of our bodies in the world today 
are profoundly different from the bodies of our great grandparents. You know, we are more different um, physically from the people of 100 years ago than the people of 100 years ago were from the people of 100,000 years ago. And when you think how the change of the last 100 years is going to be dwarfed by the change of the coming 100 years, um, I think one of the lessons of history might well be that history is about to cease to have any lessons to teach us. The world is changing so much. There are still a lot of things you can look at the past and see analogies to say, oh, yeah, this helps me think about what's happening now. But the scale of the change that is now breaking upon us is beyond anything that's ever been imagined before. Hmm. That was actually one of the questions I wanted to ask, whether you, you think that uh, with, you know, we say anyone who doesn't... Um, uh, study the history history is doomed to repeat it but uh, with the advent of increasing technology maybe that's just no longer true anymore I'm, I'm wondering though so I wanted to wrap up on just two three quick questions and the first is so today I can go to Australia or I can go to Germany I've just got something I need to shut down on my computer <laughs> so that I can continue this we, we can go to Australia, we can go to Germany, we can go to America, England, and go to a shopping center, and you can buy the same stuff. I can buy corn any time of the year, strawberries. If we look back in the past, it was the different geographies, the different animals, the different uh, types of food that were in different areas, which would give rise to different cultures. And so I'm wondering, without increased connectivity with uh, our technology allowing us to homogenize the world that we're living in are we at risk of driving into a world which has much less uh, cultural and ethnic diversity or do, or does the opening up of, of the internet and, and these new uh, avenues for exploration uh, counter that effect if you could paint a picture of, of what the future is going to look like in terms of of that direction do you do you have a picture yeah i think i think both of these things are going on at the same time that uh, the homogenization of the world is kind of astonishing uh, and much of this is good you know i can go and get my favorite kinds of beer and gin almost anywhere on the planet and our life is good um but of course it has its downsides as well and i think you're particularly I like to think about history in a very sort of evolutionary biological sense. And one of the first things any evolutionist will tell you is that diversity is everything. And that, uh, what dooms any system is loss of diversity because um, a mutation and uh, adaptation, um, these come from diversity and difference. So the slimming out of diversity around the planet, this is an alarming kind of thing that's going on. And the good news is that this is by no means the first time it's happened. And uh, you look at the archaeological record, there've been major episodes in the past when one particular type of stone tools abruptly spreads over an enormous area. So like an you know, entire continent, like the whole of North America, it's taken over by a kind of stone tool we call Clovis style, uh, the Clovis culture, uh, almost certainly driven by migration. People bringing these new technologies suddenly spread very rapidly. And then things settle down and it breaks up and fragments again. So always think throughout history, you've had both the centrifugal and the centripetal tendencies going on at the same time. And the, which wins out between the two? You know, it, it depends. Depends on all the other things that are going on at the same time. I, mean, I will be astonished if the homogenization uh, that we're seeing now does not continue and even accelerate. Uh, I think 
I, I, my guess, because again, you can only guess at these things, my guess is that the sort of um, internet-based diversity that we see now is what we're likely to see more and more of in the future. People deliberately choosing to form cultures of difference within the larger whole. And um, I suspect that like a lot of the cultures of difference now, they will depend on the existence of the larger whole for their own existence. So if you want to be like a hipster in Seattle drinking your special coffee um, and everything and fit in with all the other hipsters with their beards and their fancy bikes. Of course, you've got to have the uh, global supply chain that can bring you the coffee and all these other things. So, um, the cultures, uh, like all cultures throughout history, interpenetrate and depend on each other. So I, I suspect we're going to see increasing homogenization combined with um, localized or even not, not physically localized, they can be digitally localized, connected cultures of sometimes extreme difference within it. So if you, if you, so today we have very well-known figures, Einstein, Elon Musk, um, Neil Armstrong, people that almost everyone on the planet, or at least in the West, know. In 5,000 years, 10,000 years, 100,000 years, what happens to these names? Do they disappear or they're still there? Yes, they disappear. Um, <laughs> very, very few of them last longer. And um, this is something like literary critics have spent a long time, literary historians spent a long time studying how this works. And they, they talk about it as canon formation. Uh, canon with just with C-A-N-O-N, -N, not, not two N's in the middle. Uh, so the formation of a literary canon of a, a group of authors who are remembered and have a big influence. And often the people who are remembered 200 years on are not the ones who are actually the biggest and most popular authors, most influential in their own time. But the taste of successive generations winnows down what gets read and remembered. And um, in, in ancient history, where uh, um, I began my career, we're very conscious of this because only a very small proportion of the stuff that was written down in ancient times has survived for us. And that body of literature was dictated by the tastes of very different people from the ones who wrote it. And so like we have you know, quite a lot of stuff survives from classical Athens, but it's not a random distribution of the literature that's produced in classical Athens. It's overwhelmingly things that interested a particular group of Roman authors round about the year AD 100. So like say 500 years after Thucydides and these other guys, um, there's a radical thinning out of the literature because uh, a lot of what had been written by the ancient Greeks just didn't interest these Roman guys. They, they thought it was boring and wordy and stuff. And so a few authors survive, the ones who appeal to contemporary tastes. And then a new group of authors comes up, Roman authors who, um, synthesize and consolidate a lot of the Greek literature that people now find boring. And so volumes and volumes and volumes of Greek writings are lost. And instead we have one slim volume, often rather sensationalized, produced by a Roman author. And so it's like, you know, maybe Dickens will get forgotten and lost, but we will have a Reader's Digest summary of Oliver Twist to look to. And this will be the classic that everybody looks at. It's, it's kind of funny what happens sometimes. But so we can rely on the vast majority of contemporary names to be forgotten, and even a significant majority of the names that we currently think of as the classics are going to be forgotten. And then actually, you can see this happening in universities right now, that um, great books courses that were taught, say, back in the 1970s, 80s, when I was a student, 
overwhelmingly dominated by white male European authors. Now that is absolutely not the case. And uh, still, you know, some of these white male European authors are still getting read, but the bulk of them, in really great novelists, the bulk of them have disappeared because we've only got so much bandwidth. And so if you want to increase the diversity of, um, the, of the literary canon, you've got to dump stuff out. And so this is kind of this is just the way culture works. So yeah, I'm afraid Neil Armstrong, um, yeah, I think he, he's going to go, which is sad <laughs> because he was clearly a wonderful human being, unlike some of these guys. A wonderful human being, as well as uh, someone who did something nobody had ever done before. Uh, rolling the dice, which of these three would uh, <laughs> so Musk, Einstein, or Neil Armstrong? Which of the three? Has longevity. Uh, it pains me to say this. I have a horrible feeling it might be Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ian Morris, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on here. Thank you very much for coming on. And uh, yeah, welcome back anytime. Well, thank you so much. It's been great fun. I had a really good time. Escaped Sapiens. <laughs>